What's up, everyone? This is Boom Bostic speaking. Thank you for joining us for another exciting interview on No Doubter. In this episode, we interview a man named Glenn Morrison, someone who I met while attending college at Texas Tech University. Glenn and I met while both working at the Texas Tech Outdoor Pursuit Center and actually ended up leading our fellow students on a backpacking trip together in Cloudcroft, New Mexico during our senior year. When I met Glenn, it didn't take me long to learn that he was playing for the club-level baseball team at Texas Tech, which, to be honest, I didn't even know existed at the time. It also didn't take long to see that he was an avid fan of baseball and exhibited the qualities of a true athlete in everything he did through his hard work, dedication, and determination. When I created this podcast, Glenn was near the top of my list of people to interview, as he was, and still is, the only person I know who has played baseball at as high of a level as he has. I was eager to interview him about his experience, playing at such a high caliber level, swinging at 95 plus mile an hour pitches, and playing against other highly skilled athletes on a regular basis. When we actually sat down to interview him, Travis and I got much more than insight from an experienced ball player. Glenn told us his incredible journey of playing all the way through high school and pursuing his baseball dreams of playing at the D1 college level. This dream, however, took a devastating twist, as you'll hear, which transformed his story into not just simply chasing a dream, but learning how to overcome adversity and testing his willpower to its absolute limit. Glenn's ingrained sense of grit and determination shined through this time period, even when his relationship with baseball changed. Nowadays, his love for the game lives on, as he currently coaches high school baseball in Midland, Texas, instilling the many lessons he's learned to the next generation of baseball athletes. His plethora of experience is eye-opening, and his traditional perspective on baseball is truly unique for someone his age, as we spend the tail end of the interview talking about the current state of the game. This is the most comprehensive interview we've conducted to date, but we promise you, it is well worth the time. It's guests like Glenn who remind us just how special baseball is, and how it has the potential to instill valuable lessons that truly change a person's perspective and approach to all facets of life. Without further ado, it's our pleasure to present to you our interview with the one and only Glenn Morrison. Glenn Morrison, welcome, man. What's going on, fellas? Good to be here. Good, good to see you, Barrett. Long time. It's been a long time. We got three Texas Tech grads here. It's so Reckham Tech, baby. Let's get our guns up. Let's get ready to go. Yeah. So, Glenn, you know, when it came to interviews, you've been on my mind for a while. You know, in the time that I knew you, it became evident that baseball was a part of your life. I remember you playing, and I'm just like, every, the, the whole time I've known you, I'm like, man, 
I equated you with baseball, and uh, when we started this podcast, I'm like, I gotta reach out to this guy, so I cold reach out to you, and, uh, you know, a couple months later, here we are, so thank you for taking time out of your day to join us on No Doubter. Man, glad to be here, guys. Thanks for thinking of me, and uh, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, um, are you um, you are you coming to us from Midland, Texas? Yep, Midland, Texas, USA. Midland, Texas, uh, known for the for for its oil south of south of Lubbock. Uh, does the does that town just basically run on oil money? <laughs> it does, it does, but it's the heart <laughs> and soul. You won't find another part of the world that works harder. Um, I mean, it's really good people out here, and. Uh, yeah, you just stay focused. Work hard, play hard. They work hard, play hard. They do have a minor league baseball team, am I correct? You are. The uh, AA affiliate for the Oakland Athletics, the Midland Rockhounds. Rockhounds. What What? What a mascot. It's. It, it, it would be better if they were an affiliate for, uh, you know, the Astros or the Rangers, but uh, they got affiliates closer to their Mubbick. West Texas is so far away from all the other major cities. <laughs> It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. You got to so. go four and a half hours to anything out here, except for Lubbock. Oh, yeah. We were all there at the same time uh, uh, and now reunited. So uh, we're going to dive right into it. We're going to get your whole story from start to finish. We'll start to where it is, uh, talking baseball. Um, but before we do that... You know, it's the end of a work day. We've all had a full day of work. We gotta, we gotta, you know, settle down. We gotta unwind. And Trav, how do we do that exactly? Yes, Barrett, we do that through a little segment we call Pour and Score. Because when you're enjoying America's greatest pastime, whether that's on your couch, at the game, just anything and everything related to the great sport of baseball, uh, you have to enjoy a nice cold libation to go with it. Uh, And so we like to say that when you pour, you score. So, Glenn, kick us off with what you are drinking tonight, sir. Yeah, so fellas, I'm going to keep it simple today. And I'm going to go with the classic Lone Star. From Central Texas. But I do want to give a shout out to uh, Wild Acre Brewery. And my kind of current favorite right now is the uh, Agave Americana for summer desert type of cool down cerveza. But tonight, boys, is all about the Lone Star. Awesome. So you're you're having uh, just kind of like a standard uh, (laughs) stateside uh, domestic tonight in Lone Star. But you just said a beer that you just pitched right here is the uh, agave americana is what you said and what what brewing company is with that is that so that that comes from wild acre down in fort worth okay um i I think it's one of their core beers i don't think it's a seasonal i think they roll it out every year but man it's got the right it's got the right hit of lime and the right hit of agave nectar to make it feel you know to watch these desert sunsets out here in west texas gotcha so it sounds like it how would you classify in kind of like terms of like the type of beer? Is it more along the lines of like your Pilsner or an ale? Or are we getting more into kind of like a like a hazier kind of middle ground between that and IPA, like a blonde? Are we going more into like the blonde uh, into the IPA type of territory? How would you describe it? Like what what do they how do they say it falls on the spectrum? Sure. So it, it kicks at about a six point five percent alcohol content, and then it's got about I think we want to say it's fifteen IBUs. So it's not too hard. Uh, it does the job at the end of the workday, and it's I would classify it as a it's kind of a Pilsner beer. It's real light, real crisp, real refreshing, not real heavy, not real hazy. 
um, and you can almost see right through it. But it's got that it, it hits you on the uh, on the the sense sensation to where you smell it and you kind of get that hint of agave and that little bit of lime and man, what more does this beer need? And it gets the job done when it's 115 degrees out here. <laughs> there yeah. you go. That makes yeah. sense. Now, I, I, as you started describing it, it's like, okay, I can probably relay that to a few other very similar beers I've had in terms of the, like you said, just like the feeling and kind of the sensation of drinking. Yeah. It. There's that relayability to it. So know what you mean there. Well, on my side this evening, I've got a New Belgium Voodoo Ranger Imperial Ale. So this is in glass bottle form that I'm drinking tonight. Uh, you've got this, uh, just kind of describing the, uh, the, the label here, uh, because craft brews are often known kind of for the artwork, uh, and their labeling and that really being a selling point here. So the Voodoo Ranger Imperial IPA, it's got this like skull guy kind of wearing like one of those like pilot bomber kind of hats with goggles and like, a. A, a jacket as well uh he looks like he's ready to have a good time i'm ready to have a good time with this thing uh it's from new belgium brewing company based out of both fort collins colorado and Asheville, north carolina nine percent alcohol by volume so i'm glad i've got some food in my system for this one tonight because it's gonna <laughs> oh, yeah. hit a little hard but going ahead and uh pop the cap on her got my mason jar here again with me all right, New Belgium. I've had their fat tire before. They're a, you know, they're a pretty recognizable brewery there, but I haven't had the one you're having, so I'm very interested to see uh, your your review of this, my friend. Yeah, I was uh, I was running out of the beer, and I was at Walgreens the other day, and it was one of the few actually interesting <laughs> beers that they had there. So uh, picked it up. Uh, so it's a nice kind of dark. Mm-hmm. Fairly translucent, but darker, kind of golden uh, hue to it here. Yeah, this feels very. This feels very similar to the Hops Against Humanity IPA that uh, that I drank on another one of our shows the other night. Um, yeah, it's got that bold, hoppy IPA type of flavor, but I could tell like this is brewed appropriate for more of kind of like the hotter and warmer climates where you're looking for something that's got that bold taste, that that IPA kind of flavor and experience with it, but it's not going to just knock you on your back for the rest of the day because it's so overwhelming. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to give this a good 9 out of 10 here. Uh, yeah, it's a good solid A for our, uh, for our audience and highly uh, encourage anyone that's interested in IPA to look for the Voodoo Ranger from New Belgium Brewing. It definitely, it's not on the same level uh, as a Pilsner, but uh, or an ale. But you're, it's definitely a good few steps up um, there in terms of the bitterness, just kind of in that middle ground area. So I think if somebody is looking to kind of expand their palate and become more interested in IPAs, the Voodoo Ranger is uh, is going to be a good choice for you. There you go, uh, going all the way from Fort Worth slash Lone Star Central Texas Territory all the way to Asheville, North Carolina, and we're circling our way back to the Big D, baby. My um, drink this evening is one of the flagship craft beers of the Dallas area, and that is the Deep Ellum IPA. Yes, sir. That's right. Good choice. Oh, yeah. We did their Dallas Blonde uh, several episodes ago, but they're known for their Deep LMIPA. It is their 
it's their main brew. Um, They call it their Deep Elm IPA, and their notes say that it's for an IPA to bear our hometown name. It's better. It better be potent. So we loaded it with our favorite American hops for a bitter punch. And with some over-the-top tropical fruit, citrus, pine, floral aromas and flavors, you've got one big Texas IPA deserving of the Deep Ellum name. Uh, I know, Trav, you've had this. Glenn, have you had this beer before? Yep, Deep Ellum. It's uh, one of the favorite spots in Dallas. Oh, yeah. So you've been to the brewery? I've been to the brewery, and uh, I'd say... uh... Yeah, two thumbs up, and uh, watch out for the Dream Crusher that they've got on tap. Ooh, nice. Uh, I went there once before, and I might have had that Dream Crusher. Is that a ale, IPA? Uh, it's a double IPA that has about a 12.5% alcohol content to it, so it's uh, definitely a Dream Crusher. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, be careful with that. But anyway, I'm going to go ahead and pour it in. Got the British no-nick glass. It's just one of my favorite ways to drink it. It's it's cool aesthetically. Um, this is... Uh, what, let, let me get the specs on this. 7% alcohol by volume, 70 IPUs, so pretty decent on the bitterness scale. Got a pretty nice orange-dark color to it. Mmm, very floral nose to it. You can smell the citrus hops on there. It's It's kind of got a malty smell a little bit, which I like. You know, it's more reminiscent of a West Coast IPA, which are my favorites, so... Packs a punch. That bitterness is there, but the flavor's there, too. So, I mean, this is a rock-solid IPA. It's not an entry-level IPA, session-level IPA, but if you like IPAs, this is what I like to call a rock-solid IPA. It's got the bitterness, it's got the hops, it's got the aftertaste. Oh, man. Uh, I'm giving it a 9.5 out of 10 because I, I just like it that much. So high praise from the big D. So, if I were if I were drinking the Deep Elm IPA as well, I would also give it a 9.5 out of 10 because I'm with you there. It is, fi- find me, I might put it among like some of my travels I've done across the US. I And when I travel, I love to go find breweries at restaurants, drink local on there. I'd put it maybe in the top five of IPAs that I've had here across the U.S. It is it is that good. It's great for just like sitting on its own if you're just only looking for a drink, whether you want to pair it with like a burger, a chicken sandwich, some pizza, some other type of bar food, also rock solid. Uh, but I echo all of your sentiments, uh, Barrett, as to <laughs> as to what you how you feel about the Deep Elm IPA. It holds a holds a near and dear spot to my heart for sure. Oh, yeah. So, cheers, everybody. Yeah, there you go. Lone Star, the beer of Texas. You can't go wrong with that. I was going to mention, too, that, uh, you know, I I feel like I've been less good about reading the labels with mine, but what (laughs) you talked about, kind of the citrusy flavor to it, too. So, what it says on the Voodoo Ranger bottle is, a rare blend of choice hops creates an explosion of fresh-cut pine and citrus flavors for a complex, rich, and delicious finish. Yep, I mean, they're not lying. It's uh, <laughs> it's exactly <laughs> as the label describes. So. All right, cool. Well, we all have excellent choices and beverages this evening, so I think we're all settled in. You know, we got our brews. It's the end of the day. Um, but enough about us, Glenn. We're going to turn it over to you. You're the whole reason why we're here. Uh, with a lot of our interviews, we like to kind of 
take a trip down memory lane. Uh, you know, we want to we want to go back to the beginning. So let's do that. Let's take a trip down memory lane to a youthful, a budding Glenn Morrison, uh, somewhere deep in the concrete hills of Irving, Texas, deep in the heart of the DFW Metroplex, Glenn. As you're coming into life, you know, being raised in that area, how did how was baseball introduced to you? Well, I was introduced to baseball. My dad was a big baseball guy. Um, he's from the Northeast, but when he came down here um, in mid twenties, mid thirties, um, he he really enjoyed the game. And growing up, you know, we were always playing outside. To where, as soon as I was old enough to hold a wiffle ball bat, you know, he was throwing soft toss to me and. You know, we were playing baseball in the front yard, um, and then I was gifted a little brother, so an all-time pitcher for every batting practice that I ever wanted to take. And so um, we we were fortunate enough to have a front yard, and you know, you get a three-year-old, you know, four or five-year-old out there, you're you're going to make bases, you're going to make a pitcher's mound, and you, you're going to make a ball game. It's not going to be perfect dimensions, uh, <laughs> and so it really stemmed from just wanting to be outside. And then once you see that your first ball game, you know, going to watch the Rangers, I think it was maybe 1994, 95, the first game that I can remember going to with my dad, my uh, my brother. Uh, man, from there it just took off. The love for the game, the the competitiveness, being outside, and you know, it it, it kind of I don't want to say it came naturally. I just enjoyed playing the game. I was kind of decent at it growing up because I was. It's a little bit bigger than some of the other kids. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> at the four to five age, to where it was. Uh, <laughs> that's how I got started. It was really just you know my dad instilled the love of the game for me, and you know I picked up on his passion and his interest in it, and you know ran with it from there, and taught my little brother and got him bought in, and you know, like I said, we were we were probably playing wiffle ball every day after school, um, and then put, rolled it into t-ball, and. Uh, at, and it took off after T-ball. I, I loved it. Had a solid nickname. Um, <laughs> you care to share that nickname with us? <laughs> yeah. So there's an actual, there's a story behind it. So T-ball at the uh, the city fields in Irving was um, the River Bottoms or Trinity View Ballpark. We we all called it the River Bottoms. And um, I was playing on the White Sox. I'm five years old. And uh, the yeah. team mom for that team thought it'd be cool for everybody to have nicknames. And so she's going down the metal the metal bench in the dugout, and you've got guys. I want to be uh, hot dog. I want to be J man. I want to be bruiser. And she gets to me, and I never thought of my nickname. I'm five years old. I'm just learning how to write my name. And and she goes, well, what do you want your nickname to be? I said, I have no idea. She goes, well, what's your favorite food? And uh, well, nachos. And she goes, how about nachos? And I'm like, no, it's no. <laughs> and she she ran through a list of four or five different categories, and finally she hits on the cartoon. What's your favorite cartoon? Well, at that time, my favorite cartoon was Scooby-Doo. And so she goes, how about Scooby? And I said, okay, you know, that works. That floats my boat. And I kid you not, guys, my nickname to this day, I still have guys call me by my nickname that one, a few of them don't even know my first name. <laughs> and it's it's one of the few that stuck between all the guys I ever played with to, to, you know, being a grown adult, you know, an adult growing up now. And you still have, you, I'm still saved in my buddy's phones by my nickname that I got in T-ball. Wow. That, that is, 
that that's nuts. Scooby is is mm-hmm. that is, is is that it? Do they just they just call you Scooby. <laughs> yep, Scooby, and you know if you ever need if they ever needed a rally, and I was coming up, they play the Scooby Doo theme song, and <laughs> you know they they had fun with it. There was Scooby snacks because I wasn't the uh, the most unfed kid in the world. I was. <laughs> I liked food, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it just stuck, and it was the right fit, and um, yeah, to this day, I've still got one buddy that, on my on our wedding gift, to Scooby, and it's like, man, you know, is- you talk about going back, Barrett, and, and <laughs> going back to that story, it's, it's still just, I wouldn't have had it any other way, but... Oh my gosh. Yeah, that that's just bizarre. It all just comes from... Just some teen mom going, any, meeny, miny, mo. okay, now it's you, and man, and then it still carries over to this day. <laughs> that is awesome, man. I'll say that worked, out, but that worked out better than the, uh, the number, when she goes, what number do you want? I had no idea there either, and she goes, well, what channel is Scooby-Doo on? Uh, 46? <laughs> So my T-ball number was 46. Oh, yeah, pretty close to 45, which is what yeah. Nolan Ryan wore. So at, at a point in his career, maybe I think it was either maybe with the Astros, or the Rangers. But anyway, 46, who who are famous 46? I mean, come on, that's random. <laughs> yeah, so. Should have so, never changed. <laughs> so going back to talking about, uh, to attending your first Rangers game, I think back in 94 or 95. So. Was that still like the old ballpark? And I mean like the pre-Globe Life Park one, the one that was like across the street from it that I think like it started out as like, an, like a minor league park at one point. And then, you know, they basically expanded it into like being a major league park. And it was regarded as like one of the top five, like worst kind of uh, fan environments for like major league baseball at that point in time when it was finally demolished. Yeah, I think that I think it was Arlington Stadium. Yeah, uh, and so that was the first game. But and if you ask me the color of the seats or who won or who played, I probably couldn't tell you. There's just a picture of me, my dad, and my brother outside the 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 entrance. But uh, yeah, that was the first one, and then my first one that I can remember all the details for was the ballpark in Arlington, Arlington, the Brick Castle, the 115 degree afternoon playing the <laughs> Chicago White Sox sitting in nosebleed seats because we were bugging my dad about going but yeah no it's it's been it was hard to see it was hard to see the Rangers move out of uh, the ballpark and move into globe life just because and that's that's where I grew up you know your first uh your first boomstick your first real game you know your first date you know a lot of things a lot of memories in that stadium yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa! So you took you went on your first date at Globe Life Park. Yeah, I was trying to pull out all the stops, guys. I mean, it was even <laughs> it was even a Ranger Yankee game too, and I was about fourteen, fifteen, and I was like, "All right, goodness, I man, you were you setting the bar high with that one to start out there." I mean, not <laughs> not even just like some ice cream or like a drink or something at first. It's like we're gonna go to we're gonna go see the Yankees and the Red and the Rangers play at. Uh, <laughs> At the ballpark. I mean, that's it's a lot to uh, live up live up to after that. Well, I'll tell you, it was a lesson learned because I learned that there's some girls in life that just don't like baseball, and it's and it's it's a long ball game for nine innings if she doesn't like baseball. 
<laughs> oh, oh man well there you go you know we, uh, uh, we all learn when we're young you know it's uh, you gotta have compromise sometimes uh, you can't <laughs> when it comes to dates uh, man a lot, lot of stuff to unpack there so uh, uh, what year were you born in Glenn? 91 Ooh, man, so you are older than us. We were born in 92. So. I was born in 93, actually. Oh, pff, look at that. We got 91, 92, 93 early oh. 90s kids over here. So, But yeah, you are the, the oldest among us. Uh, your brother, when was he born? He was born in 93. There you go. So he's your age, Trav. So um, are is it just you two as siblings? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool, man. So you know, growing up, going to go, going to Rangers games, you know, as you're kind of growing, and you, you even remember the ballpark before and the ballpark before Globe Life Park, which that I, I think that's pretty cool. I went to the Astrodome before Minute Maid Park, so it's it's nice to go to see the old, so you can appreciate the new. But of course, Globe Life Park is still a it's still outdoor stadiums and outdoor stadiums. Think about them is when it's good outside, it's good. But when it's not good, it's rough. <laughs> so, but so Rangers, you know, it, it's safe to say, you know, they're your favorite team as you're getting into, you know, four age, four, five, six. Yeah. Yeah. Hometown kid, hometown team. You know, I had no other reason to like anybody else. Uh, so did you gravitate your fandom towards certain players back in those mid to late nineties? I wouldn't say my fandom to any certain player until maybe about 98, 99 when, uh, Ken Griffey Jr. Slugfest rolled out on the N64. (laughs) Yeah. You you start picking up guys' names, you know, which team you want to play with to beat your brother. And, you know, that's when I really started following guys' names and, you know, uh, guys on the other team that weren't on my team. That's when it started to to dial it in a little bit on on fandom for certain guys. Okay, so Rangers at that point, uh, you started to become aware of the names of the people on their team. So, 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 what names st- stuck out? I'm, you'll have to forgive my ignorance on the Rangers. Is this the you know names such as like Michael Young or people like that, or am I? Is that too early? You're, you're probably Pudge Rodriguez, okay. uh, Juan Gonzalez is kind of my my generation of you know guys that were playing when I started to learn the names and really understand the game and you know Pudge Hank is Blaylock. one of my Hank Blaylock, Frank Catalanato, um, uh, Rafael Palmero is a little bit later, uh, Rusty Greer, John Wetland, Rick Helling. You know, you start getting, yeah. you're getting some names. <laughs> hey, you're, you're speaking my language here. I remember these yeah. guys from like 20, around 20 years ago when I was going to some of my first games right around that yeah. 99, 2000, early 2000s period. I would say the, the teams weren't weren't good, but they were, uh, they were fun. It, it was a fun environment because of the names there. It certainly attracted the crowd. Yep. <laughs> yep. Man, there you go. So, um, who would you say your favorite player was uh, just uh, gr- just growing up? You know, you take it all the way to where, you know, the end of high school. Did you have one favorite player ultimately? So Pete Rose is one of my all, my all-time favorite player. Wow. But nice. I'm going to go back in the archives on you guys and see if you, uh, if you, you know this name. Lewis Hack Wilson. 
I think I've heard his name before. Assuming the hack is the as a nickname. So, uh, Trav, you got anything? I will. I will be honest here and say that this name does not ring a bell. (laughs) Okay. So he he's besides Pete Rose, Charlie Hustle, and the the intensity, the effort, Max, one hundred and ten percent. 120% 120% of the time kind of guy. I, I wasn't big. I wasn't 6'4". I wasn't 6'5", playing against some of these some of these taller guys to where I came to find Hack Wilson in a YouTube search in like eighth grade. And he was 5'6", 190 pounds. Dang. And, and in 1930, he hit 356, hit 56 home runs, and totaled 191 RBIs. That home run total led the lead or held for 68 years. And then that RBI total is a mark that has not been matched since 1930. And just, it's just small, you know, a small guy doing big things is kind of somebody that I kind of looked up to or looked back to. Dang, Hack Wilson, God. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've seen Clint, you know, Ken Burns' documentary twice, and I thought I had some cool names, but that's a little bit of a deep cut right there. Man, cool. Pete Rose, I love that you mentioned that. Pete Rose, the all-time MLB hit king, Charlie Hustle. Have you read his autobiography before? I haven't. I haven't. It's on my list. Uh, I just finished Jeter's to where... um, Roses on my list. Have you read it? I sure have. I I drive a lot. I listen to the audiobook. He doesn't narrate it. Someone else does. But regardless, he writes it all himself. I've read uh, Chipper Jones's book. Um, but dude, he's one of your favorite players. You got to read it. He writes it himself. And, you know, for a guy who's not an author, it's actually pretty pretty cool you would love it especially since he's your favorite player so move that up the list man it's i mean you got to listen to it but uh, at at what points did you because because pete rose is before all of us i mean you know he had a long career he played into the 70s i mean at what point did you become aware of rose and 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 you kind of touched on it a little bit i mean but why did you gravitate towards him specifically so that was probably going to be in high school, you know, um, when I realized I wasn't going to be 6'4", I wasn't going to throw 97, I wasn't going to hit the ball 500, 500 feet to where you had to do the little things right. You were the guy that, or I was the guy that was finishing the game covered in dirt, you know, that max effort, hot sliding head first, any chance he had, and playing with 100% of passion, fire, and grit in the belly. And he he was the one player that I felt – illustrated the way I played the best or who I tried to mimic or match or idolize on my playing ability. Uh-huh. And when you read his book, just kind of a little teaser there, what you'll find is that his dad was an incredible athlete. He played the game the way he did because that's the way he, his dad played. His dad played semi-pro uh football in the Cincinnati area and he was a hometown hero his dad was uh believe is Pete Rose senior and he was Pete Rose junior I could be wrong there but regardless I mean it is it is a mentality it, it is a way to play the game you don't even, even today and today is the worst you have people they don't run out routine ground balls I mean you, they just trot trot in there but I mean he ran to first base when he was walked. I mean, he was just 
hundred percent all the time. And and man, just reading that book, hearing from you, uh, that's cool that you played like that because why not? You know, especially in, when you're younger, you have a much bigger chance of people goofing up routine grounders. So you might as well go a hundred percent. I mean, why not? Why not? Right. And I've got I've got scars and you know. Other things that prove it, you know, some guys lay up, run slow, and, you know, I'm running fast, trying to beat it out, and, you know, chicks dig scars. There you go. So, it it, it all goes back to Pete. Man, um, you know, since we're talking about Pete, you know, we'll get back to uh, kind of your early years. Uh, I, I, I have to ask this. I mean, he's he has a lifetime ban from baseball. Do you think he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? Hundred percent. I, I think he <laughs> deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, um, you know, gambling was against the game. You know, he did it while he was a manager. He is the hit king. I mean, he's the one of two people in the four thousand hit club. It's Ty Cobb and Pete Rose, and that's it. <laughs> if he didn't do that, he would be a first ballot. And you know, he has to live with it for the rest of his life. And man, but I mean, but people still. They they should give him the credit he deserves. So, yeah, at man. the very least, four thousand two hundred fifty six hits. That's something that I I don't know if it'll ever get matched. And that's something that you know he deserves the recognition and the praise for what he did as a player. Now, if he never makes it into the managerial Hall of Fame, like I can understand that. But man, the way he played the game and what he did for the sport is something um, Hall of Fame ish. Yeah, that's cool that he can still inspire people even when he's past his playing years. His legacy lives on, and hopefully it will continue. So even though it's kind of tainted, but I mean, that's didn't awesome. he also like he didn't he also essentially like bet on the game, but not with the intent of throwing games. It's like he betted because he was such like a smart and sharp kind of like analytical mind he was like you know what he just kind of basically did as like a middle finger to the establishment of like wanting to uh like kind of show people like what he knew and that he could like basically like make money off of the outcomes of like what he had a hunch was going to happen with it yeah and i think he was cocky i think he was a cocky confident person and you know that it's never been proven in the Dowd report that he bet against his team. So that reflects a sense of confidence that you have in your team and your boys that you're going to go out and win a game if you're betting for your team to win. As a player, I would I would like that. You know, my coach has got extra skin in the game for us to win the ball game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, ga- I mean, gambling. You know, that can really lead you down a dark turn. And you know, having read the book, and I mean, you can find this. And he said it countless times since then. So I'm not really spoiling anything. He bet on his team to win every single night. So that is the way he approached it. He's kind of like Michael Jordan. I mean, Michael Jordan was a compulsive gambler. I mean, if you watch The Last Dance and you'll find it there. And Pete Rose is the same. You've got ultra competitive, one speed, full speed. And that that's the way he did it. Now, you know, did he? he yeah, it, it, it was just automatic. I bet on my team to win to win every, like, every single night. He was just putting money on it. Now, I mean, that can get out of hand and it's probably not the best financially, but it's just it was an extension of his competitive drive, but that was it. So unlike the black Sox who fixed the game, he just, he would just bet on his team to win every single time. And it's technically it's against the rules, but you know, we digress. Um, (laughs) Pete Rose, man. Uh, 
his it's funny that you mentioned his his hit record which which record do you think is more unattainable his hit record nolan ryan's strikeout record or uh cal ripken jr's consecutive game record cal ripken jr's consecutive game record oh man yeah you have game and it's weird that we got on this tangent but we might as well go because you have players in the mindset across all sports of load management there was no load management back in the day. You know, a little sore here. Cal Ripken Jr., man. What is it like? I mean, I, do you have to know the numbers? Is it like, what, 2,000 or something like that? Oh, is it more than that? I'd have to look it up. I don't know the hard number, but... 2,632 straight games. Dang. What? us I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh! I mean, Nolan Ryan, Cal Ripken, Pete Rose, those are the greats. <laughs> I mean, so if you if you divide that out, say average 162 game season, right? So 2,632 divided by the 162. Mm-hmm. That is 16 straight seasons, never missing a game. Does that sound yeah. right? Yo, yeah, yeah, for sure. That sounds right. Uh, Okay, because that's think about that now in sports. You know, they pull you for this, they pull you for that. You've got paternity leave, you got you know sickness, you've got COVID these days. I mean, that, that'll be hard to match in baseball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, play players are getting stronger with sports science, but that's just. I think you picked the right one, Glenn. I mean, yeah, you know, you got pitchers getting better and we can talk about that later but cal ripken man you know all these greats you got some good players now but uh, you know pete rose man i like where you're going there so um you kind of talked about how you emulated him in high school but let's just kind of dial it back a bit so you know you're growing you're going to games baseball starting to become a hobby of yours um that time when you played and that's you know, that team mom gave you the nickname. What kind of, or, you were playing T-ball, correct? Yeah, that was T-ball. That was uh, City League. That was, mm-hmm. you put your name in a hat. You Mom and dad sign you up on the registration fee. You go to a tryout. All the coaches sit there and score you on their scoring system. And then they have a player draft for five and six-year-olds. And then you wind <laughs> up on a T-ball team. There you go. You got to start somewhere. Um, so... You go from T-ball to coach pitch, you're entering into kid pitch. Uh, describe describe your first foray into kid pitch. Uh, how uh, how was how was that experience for you? Yeah, so the way we did it um, in Irving, kind of the way it was set up, is you had T-ball, the coach pitch, and there was a YMCA league, and then there was a city league. So the city league was coach pitch, the YMCA league was machine pitch. So I was I was playing as much as many sports as I could. My mom was keeping us busy out of trouble and just, you know, be uncommon to go to a soccer game, to a baseball game, to a baseball game, um, all in the same day. Um, wow. and so I had I had a knack for hitting a good eye hand coordination growing up. And so once we got out of coach pitch and you get into kid pitch and you realize if it hits you it's not gonna hurt. Man, it was it was fun. I I I loved every bit of kid pitch. I, I was never the kid that got hit once and then shied away. I was 
I was I was hungry to hit. I loved hitting. I loved swinging the bat and hitting the ball and running the bases and you know hearing the crowd cheer when you hit the ball because at T-ball and coach pits, if you made contact, every mom loses their mind. <laughs> uh, exactly. Um, do you bat right or left? So I batted right-handed until college, and then I had an injury, and I had to learn how to hit left-handed. And so now I, I switch it. Oh, dude. Oh, man. Uh, we'll get to that later. But man, foreshadowing there. So but I guess uh, before that injury, you're batting righty like, you know, the common people, uh, like most people. So but man, I'm very interested to see when we get there. But yeah, so uh, you're playing kid pitch. Were you gravitating to any kind of position specifically at that point? Well, you guys, uh, I may not look it now, but I used to be the fat kid on the playground. And I I hit three, four. I was the power guy because I was bigger. Like I said, I didn't miss a lot of meals and I was well fed. But I also played shortstop because I had a, I had a good arm, and so I bounced between shortstop and second base. Um, I tried to stay off the mound as much as possible. I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, <laughs> so I guess I was middle infield, kind of through and through. Until I kind of hit a growth spurt, leaned out, and then went from four hole to hitting lead off and playing outfield. So, so when we're talking about you being the fat kid. Are we talking about the Babe Ruth beer gut, or uh, are we talking more just like you were, <laughs> like you were more of like certified Pillsbury Doughboy all over? You're talking about like the 34 Husky type of uh, guy <laughs> on the playground. Oh, but yeah, the Doughboy for sure. There you go. Well, hey, batting the four hole that, you know, that's uh, that batting cleanup, baby, you know, so you're making it happen. So um, you're you're moving up. You're kind of in the infield. You eventually make it into the outfield. Um, Did you ever uh, play? So so uh, I'm, I'm getting caught up here. So so you have the YMCA League. And in the city league, and that's uh, coach pitch and machine pitch. And then from yep. there, you go in the kid pitch. And uh, did you eventually go from there? Um, what would you call that? Would you call that little league, or or what did you call that? Yeah. So our our city affiliation was Pony Baseball at the time, mm-hmm. and you had you had what was it? Shetland was T ball. They did it all based on horses. Shetland. Um, Oh, I forget what coach pitch was, but you, then you had Bronco and then you had Pony. And by the time you kind of graduated from Pony, you were 14, 15, rolling into high school, getting ready to play for your high school team. So um, it was, it, it, you know, very, I love the way that they did it. The progression, just from a development standpoint, T-ball to coach pitch to kid pitch. And then that's when you really started to see who had it, who didn't have it, who who was going to be a ball player, and who was just there for snacks after the game. Um, <laughs> you know, the first curveball I ever saw, I was probably about 11 years old, and I said, what is that? And you started to learn how to hit the curveball, otherwise you were sitting on the bench. And uh, that's probably where I learned to throw the curveball is about 11, 12. But like I said, I didn't want to pitch. I, I didn't want any part of it. But um <laughs> But yeah, no, it, 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 as you grew, the kids got stronger, you're getting stronger, the development's getting there, and then when you hit Bronco, your kids are throwing. Uh, you, you know who threw hard, you know who threw fast, because up until that point, what we call Bronco, you weren't back to the 
to the 60 feet just yet to where you were still kind of close. Mm-hmm. Man, there were some guys that were six, you know, that prodigy at six four, throwing from like fifty eight feet, and you're like fifty five feet, and you're like, man, this, no. I don't... <laughs> but uh, yeah. but once we got once we got the pony and it gets stretched out, and you know that's that's the way it's gonna be, and then you roll into high school and you get to the ninety foot bases and the sixty foot six inches. Yeah, there's a little bit of lag or catch up that you got to do because now every ground ball that you used to hit, you got to run an extra eight, eight more steps to get to the base. And so there's, there's, there's that curve. Uh, once you hit that high school level and everything gets pushed back for 90, but man, it was fun. I little league. And the, the reason I mentioned pony is cause, um, I actually played in the little league world series. Dude, that, that's awesome, for, man. For that type of, um, that type of league. Cause you have pony, you have Babe Ruth, you have Little League, which plays in Williamport. Um, but we actually played, we had our own uh, Little League World Series there in Irving. We played Puerto Rico. We played, you know, uh, Tamiami, Florida. We played St. Juliet, Illinois. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I was, it, it was a blast because, you know, as you're growing up playing with these with all the other guys on the different teams, then you start getting separated into middle schools. And so now you're starting to play against each other in football, basketball, and they're on a different team as you're still going through baseball. And then, you know, it just creates a little bit extra rivalry. You know, I've got guys I never played on the same team, and we always played against each other growing up. And to this day, like, he's still a Hornet, and I was still a Bulldog. And, it, you know, there's no way about it. It is what it is. Man, a lot to unpack there. Um, Little League World Series. Uh, uh, d- describe that for. Is this the Little League World Series that we all watch on TV? <laughs> no, the, the one we have doesn't have as good of me- media rights as that one does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're still playing international. You know, Florida, Puerto Rico. I mean, dang. I mean, how how was that experience for you? Man, it was pretty good, and just kind of maybe a reoccurring theme is I've always been a, kind of the underdog or on the underdog side of things because with Irving hosting that World Series, the, there was always a hometown that got an automatic bid into the World Series, and so they made all-stars at the end of the, these Little League seasons, and we had an American League and we had a National League. Well, National League was a little bit better than the American League, typically. Mm-hmm. And so they automatically got an automatic buy. And so our American League All-Star team, we actually had to win our way in. You had to play in all the tournaments all summer. You had to win um, city, tri-city, re- regional, bi-regionals, area, sectional. Like We had a lot of games played that that summer, and... We we won every tournament we had to win, and we won our way in. So the year that wow. I made it, it was the first year that the city of Irving had two teams in their Little League World Series. Wow. Winning your way in. You don't get a bye. You won your way in. Man, you earned it, baby. That's awesome. So when you're in there, you're in a did they what? Did they set up a bracket system? You're playing against the teams all over the country and you know Puerto Rico, you know, it's an actual World Series, unlike the MLB, you can say. Uh, it's you know, h- how far did this magical team make it? 
we made it to the World Series, and then I think we won one out of our four pool play games, and then we were out pretty quickly when we matched up with Puerto Rico. Um, but I still hit five home runs in the home run derby and got third. So you know. <laughs> oh man! So wait, hitting bombs. Describe. Uh, no, no. When? How old were you when you first hit a ball over the fence? I was playing for the. Oh, I was playing for the. Cobras, and I was probably 10, 11 years old, and we were playing the Blue Jays. We were playing on the field closest to the highway, and I'd never hit a home run in a kid pitch game before. And I remember that it was high, and I Tommy hocked it, and the ball went over the fence. <laughs> and that was my first home run, and I still have the ball somewhere. And that's one of my most prized in my, like, fifth grade handwriting, like, Cobras versus Blue Jays' first career home run ever. <laughs> Written in black ink on a Tomahawk fastball over the right field fence. <laughs> oh, man. So you went Oppo Taco. Yep. <laughs> Look right side, hit right side. <laughs> oh, man. Uh <laughs> were you a were you a pull hitter or a push hitter at that time? 100% pull hitter. I, I don't know how that ball went over the fence when it was two feet above my head. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. O- only when you're 10 years old can that can that happen. <laughs> no way that can happen. <laughs> and you don't remember age. if like you don't remember maybe like the wind direction that was coming out of if it was more of like a more humid or dry kind of day, any sort of conditions that could have led to a. Uh, <laughs> this just like unexpected moments of tomahawking a ball out for a homer. No, I mean, I have no idea. The good Lord was just looking down upon me and said, we're going to get you started with your first one right here. Oh man. Dingers, baby. Oh, dingers. Man. There you go. It was, That's a, what... it, it was a, it was a no doubter off the bat. There you go. <laughs> you, you know, you hit a no doubter. You're on no doubter now. For the so. brand. For the brand, baby. So that's how you do it, man. It you describe how the kid pitch is really the proving ground for it. I can attest to that. I I went through one year of kid pitch, and I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> so, uh, man, I wish I could have stuck it out with you. And uh, I would go up to the plate, and I I couldn't I I couldn't hit the side of a barn, and so I realized that. If I just don't swing, they're uh, they're probably gonna walk me, and that's what they would. So I would be an on base machine because I just wouldn't swing, <laughs> cheating the system, right? Inflating your stats. High, yeah, nothing wrong with a high on base percentage. Oh yeah, yeah. Got, uh, got Joey got Joey Gallo up to the Yankees and gets him a <laughs> uh, a chance to get into the playoffs. Oh yeah, you know, um they they wouldn't pay me enough money to do that. I love my beard too much. <laughs> you know, Gallo, poor man. He and oh, him and Odor, baby faced, hitting bombs up there, man. So Yeah, Odor. That's that's poor guy. I'm with you on that one. <laughs> uh, and their infinite wisdom they get odor and so it's like ah, this lefty's not panning out we gotta we gotta go all out we gotta get the flashy names okay fine uh we'll sh- we'll, we'll get rizzo and gallo and then we'll make our that th- that'll make our fans happy. we will paint our top five payrolls being effective for making it to the playoffs again but of course the but pretty much they need to win it all this year or else cashman's getting fired <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we'll see. But man, hitting no doubters. Um, so that's when you're like, you were 10 when you hit that, correct? Yeah. 10 years old, hitting a ball over the fence and you got that ball. Man, that's got to be an awesome feeling. So as you're going through the little leagues, making it to middle school, um, would you... Um, and you said you run the won the home run derby in the little league. I mean, was that your game plan going up to the plate? Did you want to just hit it out of the park the whole every single time? No, see ball, hit ball. It just so happens I, I had enough weight behind it, and I was swinging, you know, a pretty big bat for t- ten years old. That I hand coordination worked out for me. It was I. I didn't want. Ah. It happens. I don't know. It just happens. <laughs> there you go. Hey, those are the, those are always the best ones where you just you make good contact and it's a line drive over the fence, baby. So, um, let's get into high school. So, high school ball. So, real quick before. So, you said that you you did many different sports uh, growing up. Did um, how long did your experience doing multiple sports at a time? How long did that last? So I was a junior in high school, and it came down to it gets narrowed down and down and down. And I hit high school, and my freshman year, I played. I was swimming, I was wrestling, I was playing soccer, I played basketball, I played football and baseball. And you realize real quickly which ones you have a chance at, and which ones you don't have a chance at. And you're just playing scout team for uh, for the guys that are six foot five, two hundred and fifty pounds, and. <laughs> I got to my junior year, and a football coach said, Glenn, we want you to uh, come to spring practice, which spring football practice is the heart and soul of baseball season. I said, Coach, I'm not coming until I'm done with baseball. Well, you know, if you're not going to come, you're probably not going to play. I said, well, then I'm not going to play. You know, go find yourself another strong safety. And (laughs) I saw the writing on the wall. We were playing Duncanville and Cedar Hill and some of those big schools, and I just stopped growing. (laughs) <laughs> I had no shot. <laughs> How tall were you at this point? So I was probably five eight, five nine as a junior in high school, and I knew I wasn't hitting six five. So <laughs> when a defensive end comes around the corner at six eight, two fifty as a as a uh, junior senior in high school, you're like, man, I'm gonna get hurt. I got to find something else. I got to go to where my skill set's more uh, utilized than uh, trying to tackle guys twice my size. Man, so at that point, junior year, you've you've done a plethora of sports, which is great because when you do multiple different sports, it reduces the chance of injuries uh, because you're not doing one sport at a time. Um, were your parents intentional about that, or did they just want you? No, I mean, did they encourage you to do multiple sports, or did is, was that did that come from you? Did you just want to do every sport that you were interested in that you could? No, my mom and dad were great. They they always put me and my brother before themselves and gave Jake and I every opportunity in the world. You know, they, they said, well, you know, sign you guys up for whatever sports. We want to keep you guys busy, keep you out of trouble and keep you engaged. And, um, you know, love them to death for that and that selflessness that they had to allow me to play the game. That's awesome, man. It, it, it's cool that you did wrestling. That, that was that, that was wrestling at your at your high school, right? Yeah, yeah, my dad being from the Northeast, he was a collegiate wrestler for the University of New Hampshire. Dude, and nice. he had that mentality, but 
there was just something about wrestling in Texas when it's 110 degrees in the wrestle room. It just doesn't sound as good as being in the Northeast in the middle of winter wrestling. Like, um, and he, he, he had, he, he, weighed, he, he wrestled one twenties, one tens in high school. It's cause he was a small guy to so where he, he had an advantage. I wasn't 110, 120. I was 150, 160. And, there were some stout 150, 160s in this in DFW wrestling my weight class that are a lot more serious about it than I was, and I got it handed to me two, three matches, and it's like I'm gonna go find something else to do. This <laughs> oh, sorry, Dad, I tried. Oh man, um, I did a lot of sports growing up. Never really panned out. My favorite sport that I ever did was wrestling, by far. And uh-huh. wrestling's great. I did two years of football, but in football there are no weight classes. There's there's discrepancies all over the place. But in wrestling, you're you know within a seven pound, ten pound area, you're wrestling someone who is more or less your size. So it's it, it evenly matched, right? Uh, yeah. But man. Uh, that's cool that you did that. Um, so you say junior year. That was at the point in which you you continue on, and then your senior year is that your is baseball your only sport at that point? Yeah, yeah. So it, going back to that high school, kind of that turning point is club club baseball, select baseball wasn't really a thing. And it was just picking up steam to where you could see you had certain organizations where the premier guys were starting to flood to. The summer baseball is really starting to pick up steam, and it wasn't just all-stars or a hometown team. You were starting to pull guys from a lot of different schools and putting this good premier showcase caliber team on the field. And I got involved with that with the Dallas Dragons my sophomore year. My sophomore year. And so we're starting to pay for club travel baseball. And, you know, you're seeing the writing on the wall. And that junior year, the coach just, he kind of kind of outkicked his coverage on the ultimatum. And I walked away, um, never, never thought twice about it. And senior year, baseball, baseball was it. It was either baseball or bust. But uh, luckily, I had a high enough GPA, too, to where I had a backup plan to go to college. There you go. So, uh, you kind of, you know, this, uh, so you say backup plan of, of going to college. So at this point, uh, uh, when you're coming into your senior year of which high school? Irving high. Irving high, baby. Uh, what is this? Is this five, a four, a six, a. So it was five, a when I was there and they bumped up to six, a when they, when they increased the, uh, the, the rankings or the, the divisions. Okay. So- UIL. Yeah, uh, yeah. Regardless, it's a pretty big school. So, um, at this point, uh, did you were you in the outfield at this point? So I started on varsity as a sophomore. Okay. Uh, I started in right field because I said, "Coach, just put me in. I want to play. I want to be on varsity. Whatever I can do to help the team." And then I transitioned into second base, and I played predominantly second base junior senior year um, through high school. Okay, so you're coming into uh, the end of your senior uh, your senior year. Um, I mean, at that point, uh, you said y- you talked about how you had a good enough GPA as a backup plan in college. That that sounds to me like um, I mean, were you? 
aspiring to do baseball uh, post high school come graduation? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. That was the goal and that was the dreams to play college baseball, to take that next step and, you know, be in a different, you know, get into a different class, a different com- uh, competition level. And, you know, all the practices, all the games, all the all the everything and then just the love for the game. I wanted to do it on a college level. I wanted mm-hmm. I wanted that. And mm-hmm. that was one of the reasons I gave up everything else was I thought my best shot you know, it's a balance what you have the best shot at and what you enjoy most to make it to the next level and playing club ball, getting that exposure and really just grinding, trying to do everything you think a college wants, you know, the good GPA, you know, good average coachable kid that's, you know, moldable when you get into a college program to get an invite to, you know, some guys are lucky enough to get scholarships to go on scholarship and to go play and compete for, for university. That's, and that's what I wanted, but, you know, you're a realist to where, you know, at some point, everybody hangs it up, whether it's T-ball, whether it's high school, whether it's college, whether it's professional, whether it's, you know, semi-pro, it's, or men's league softball, everybody hangs it up at some point. And I, I was smart enough to have a backup plan, and I was I'm gifted and blessed to be good academically as well as athletically, so... Um, 100% selling out on going to school to play baseball uh, as, as a senior in high school. Uh-huh. So, uh, um, Texas Tech, uh, you go straight from high school to Texas Tech? Nope, nope. Oh, there, there's, okay. there's, a, there's a pretty good story and a path in between. <laughs> oh, man, so, do tell. Yeah, so, you got to unpack this all here because I feel like they, we're about to see some twists and turns happen here. Yeah, <laughs> so... so like I said, I wasn't the biggest, I wasn't the strongest, I wasn't the fastest, so I didn't have scouts with radar guns at games. I had uh, I had a couple other guys that had that. You know, Blake Bevan, the eleventh round or the eleventh pick for the Rangers in the two thousand six draft. You know, that's the first time I saw ninety eight miles an hour and he hit me in the elbow as I was standing in for batting practice. And so so I I, I knew that gauge. I, I was among I was playing against guys of that caliber to where I was I was in and around it, but I wasn't the highlight on the roster sheet when guys were coming to the game. I was, you've got to go three for four, steal four bases, have good at bats to even get a guy to come talk to you after the game. And going through summer ball in high school, I had that. I had coaches come, you know, come up, man, you played really good today. I like your heart. I like your hustle. Like I was talking about, like, Bill Pete Rose, you know, that's what got me noticed. It wasn't. Oh, look at number 27, you know, he's 6'4", he's getting on the bump, he's going to strike out 12, 12 high school kids. No, it was, and he plays with pride, hustle, and intensity and integrity. And coming out of high school, I didn't, I didn't want to go D3. I had, I had plenty of opportunities to go D3. Um, a lot of, majority of my recruiting trips were D3, um, but I felt like, I didn't want that. I wanted mm-hmm. I wanted something a little bit closer to home. Um, I was getting phone calls from Harvard, Columbia, but turns out I didn't have the right SAT score for what they were looking for. Oh, so, so, you know, you, you're starting to swallow some pills. You're starting to grow up a little bit on, you know, not everything's just given to you because you want it. And um, I, this is where it starts to get into the gritty, the grittiness of the mint the mentality of a uh, high school athlete 
and a, you know, a potential college baseball player is I didn't have any full rides coming out of high school except for, except for one. And that was Marion Military Institution in Alabama. <laughs> Whoa. There you go. Do you take I, it? No, no, I didn't know where it was. <laughs> but you know, grateful for the opportunity and the interest. But what I ended up doing was my best friend at the time, she had a scholarship to go play volleyball at Texas Wesleyan in Fort Worth. And that was close to home. You know, I was kind of bouncing around. I didn't want to give up baseball. I still felt like I had some in the tank and I could help. And my buddies are all, you know, A&M big schools and they're done athletically. They're just going to go do the school thing. And I wasn't ready. And so I end up trying out for Wesleyan, walk, getting a preferred walk-on status, walking on to Texas Wesleyan, and in the first day, first baseball meeting, you walk in, and there's 110 guys. And immediately as a freshman, you think, I've made the worst decision of my life. Here I am, one of like 110, and this coach is just going to go through and cut guys. But now – it's financial, right? It's it's not like I'm coming here for free. It's I've paid the semester tuition, and then you're going to cut me from the team, and I'm stuck here. Like that's not so. From a, from the from the get go, there's this wall that you start to build up. Like man, the odds are against me, one in one ten. And all right, time to go to work. You know, like just the mental fortitude. My my club coach Jeremy Browning, um, which I attribute my mental the mental toughness, which I don't think a lot of the younger generation has on. So what if somebody's better than you outwork them, earn it day in and day out, beat them. The talented may have a head start, but it's going to be the work ethic and the mentality for the marathon. And so I got busy, you know, coach goes through and he starts numbering off groups for hitting. And as you can imagine, like 110 guys, I was like group 12, to hit and you could see all his starters were groups one through four one through five and as fall ball is going on you're trying to figure out college you're trying to figure out class and wesleyan's a small school d1 naia and okay i'm smart i've got the book smarts but on the athletic field you just weren't getting a chance so where you were a small group you were kind of not on not on the radar and one of the greatest things my dad's ever done for me is it got to about October and I wasn't seeing the field. I wasn't getting, getting a chance to play in the inter squads, nothing. And you go from being your high school captain, all district, all state to hitting group 14. And what's going on? And so my dad actually made a phone call to the head coach and said, um, yeah. And he said, Hey, um, you know, how about you give my, you know, give him a chance. And it wasn't my son deserves my son. You know, you need to play my, my son. It wasn't anything like that from what he kind of told me afterwards. And, you know, that next day at practice, I get, I get called into the office and he goes, go ahead and sit down. And I'm like, man, he knows my name. I didn't think he knew my name. So, all right, that's a good sign. And he goes, I'm going to give you a shot tomorrow. You're going to be in the inner squad. And it's going to show you how overmatched and overpowered you are. Uh, all right. Oh, wow. Yeah. Those, so, were, those, were, those were his exact words. Exact words, and I'll never forget them. Uh, it, I'm going to show you how overmatched and overpowered you are. Um, I said, okay. 
that's fair. I appreciate the opportunity. And so the next day you're going through class and you're like, man, today's the day. I have an opportunity. You know, there's certain days in life that you have a chance to prove something. And this was one of those days. And he slots me in the inner squad and you're in AIA. So you're playing against juniors, seniors in college. These guys are 23, 24 years old. And I just turned, I just turned 19. Yeah. I just turned 19 or no, as a matter of fact, I'm just, yeah, I just turned 19 when I got the shot and I'm playing second base. He slots me in and, um, and I'm hungry for the opportunity, right? So I'm not, I, I don't take what he said. You know, you brush it off and say, okay, I've got a doubter. Um, and, man, if the stars didn't align, align and I didn't pray hard enough, I had probably one of the best baseball days of my entire life that day. I went, I went three for four. My first at bat was a double. My second at bat was a single that I hit down the line. But... The first baseman kind of misplayed it and rolled behind him, and I took second base. So automatically, there's that hustle. There's that, hey, I'm going to get to that next base. And then he brings in a pitcher that's one of his top JUCO transfers, and he throws me a changeup low and in, and I drop the hands and th- uh, throw the bat head, hit a home run over off center field. Dude. And, you know, <laughs> and so I just have kind of a, kind of a you know, coming out party. And, man, nothing felt better than after that game or after that inner squad and after that practice, he says, Morrison, come here. And so now we're on a last name basis. So we're kind of progressing. Okay, (laughs) okay, okay. (laughs) And um, he goes, maybe I was wrong. You know, maybe you're not overpowered and overmatched. And so then I went from hitting group 14 to hitting group four. Wow. And I never let it go after that to where I continued to play, play my butt off, work hard. You know, who cares if you're a freshman? You know, everybody's still out there to play the same same game. Everybody puts their pants on the same way. And, yeah, you know, the guys throw a little bit harder. Stuff's a little bit nastier. They're a little bit stronger. But nobody's going to play as hard as I'm going to play was kind of my mentality. And, you know, by my dad calling and, you know, having that conversation opened up a door of opportunity, which – Nobody did anything for me that day. It was it was solely me, and you know the fact that I hit real well, and you know it's all that to God, right? To where you know right place, right time. He's got a plan, and you know you 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 rely on faith and athletic ability and mental fortitude, and and good things happened. And it was it was still one of the one of the best days of my life was showing up my first high school coach that I was. I was meant to be there, and I was going to help the team that year as, as a um, true freshman. Man, Texas Wesley, and you going in, hitting group four. The dream is alive, baby, walking on. Um, so that that's your freshman year. I mean, you, do you do, – um, before I go there, um, so at high school – you know what is the what is the pitch arsenal at high school? Is it just is it fastball majority of the time? Are they starting to grow change ups, curves, sliders, <laughs> anything like but that? You're, you're you're getting the kitchen sink. You know some guys throw soft loopy stuff. Some guys throw ninety seven, ninety eight with wipeout sliders. Um, you know you're starting to see that that real separation. And 
man, you see guys get drafted straight out of high school, and there's a reason. They've got four or five pitches that are A-plus level pitches, B-plus level pitches that they can spot up and they can hit their spots. Now, you knew, you know, you knew who those guys were when you were playing the other team. You knew if they had one of those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, you, you were hitting against guys with fastball, curveball, changeup slider. And then you'd get the occasional um, goofy kid that threw the knuckleball. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, you've got guys that are about to get drafted throwing everything that you would expect on a college level. Man, and so when you enter into college, I mean, that stuff, that changeup right there, I mean, that it's got to be, you know, standard. I mean, you've got basically every pitcher going up there. They got at least two or three pitches that are working for them right yeah at least at least you know and i'm i wouldn't call myself a pitcher and i'll tell you i throw five pitches (laughs) (laughs) nice so uh you get to group four um where do you go from there are you just hustling away just trying to make the dream alive yeah trying to make that that varsity roster because i didn't know in college you could have a jv and a varsity (laughs) <laughs> and I, I'd never played JV and I wasn't planning on starting in college. Um, and so, yeah, you know, that grind of, okay, you know, you've earned that spot. Don't lose it. Don't let somebody come in and outwork you, outwork them and continue to get better and develop to where you can actually help the team and compete. And, you know, as, as that fall wears on, that's really where the coaches are doing their evaluation of their guys for spring season, which starts January. There's not a lot of time coming back after fall semester that you have to go from group 14 to group four to where he, he's building his lineup and it's it's the grind. And it's trying to develop a rapport with guys that are 24, 25, and I'm 19. You know, wow. I think I think when we broke spring, um, kind of sp- for spring season, there was two, th- three, four true freshmen that were – kind of on the fringe of actually getting some playing time. And, man, that's all you wanted was to dress out, to be a part of the team, be in the team, varsity team picture, and, you know, just kind of there to do your part. Um, one of my best friends, he's actually a part of my wedding. He was a he was a scholarship guy, and he was another one of the true freshmen on the team. And then another one of my buddies who we transferred to Tech at the same time, we were roommates at Tech, um, he was a pitcher. And so they were getting a little bit more playing time. And I was I was maybe depth chart two, depth chart three, middle infield. Um, but I continued to hit and continued to show that I could hit the ball. And, you know, I'll go back to this, Barrett, because I think, you know, it means a lot to me is, you know, growing up playing, playing Little League, I never understood. I, I was benched one game, and I never understood why. Hmm. And my mom came over, and she goes, Glenn, if you hit, they have to play you. If you if you hit good, they will play you. And whenever she said that, it was like, okay, if I hit the ball, they're going to find a place for me. And that continued to where, you know, I didn't take the I'm going to go up there for a walk approach because, it, you know, other guys will do that. But I'm looking to hit the ball and to be the contributor on the offensive side, and they'll find a place for me. And that's kind of the case case being to where playing with that intensity and that that uh, that dirtbag mentality um, got me that opportunity. And 
Yeah, to where I'll, I'll stop there to where it kind of answers your question on that one, Barrett. Yeah, there you go. So, um, uh, how long were you at Wesleyan? So, yeah, I was at Wesleyan two years. So, to kind of bring that full circle is I ended up I ended up starting, um, I want to say, 28 game, 24 games as a true freshman. Um, wow. The starting second baseman pulled his hamstring. So, my first collegiate game came from the defending NAIA national champions. Wow. I went 0 for 2 with two walks. Okay. But... He tore his, he, he pulled his hamstring the day before the game ends. Coach pulls me into the locker room because the cool thing about Texas Wesleyan was we got to play at LaGrave, the independent field south of the courthouse, south, uh, da- south of downtown Fort Worth. And so you're a college kid getting to play on a minor league independent field in downtown Fort Worth, which was fantastic. And he calls me in and he goes, Morrison and Rocha pulled his hamstring. You're starting tomorrow. And we just played game one of the, the three-game set against the defending national champions, and you're like, all right. So where it catches you by surprise, you see him go down, and you're starting to think, okay, well, maybe it's me, maybe it's somebody else. But when you actually get told you're going to start a college baseball game, when this is something that you've dreamed about, something that you've wanted since, really, since I was middle school and having that desire, it was first phone call was to my dad. And wow. I said, Dad, you know, I need you to take off tomorrow at three o'clock. I'm starting game one against Cumberland university. And he goes, you know, he's, he's elated. You know, it's probably just like every dad that, you know, gets that phone call, whether it's their kids starting the first college game or getting called up to the big leagues. I mean, he had that, we had that moment together, which I'll never forget that phone call. And he took off the next day and he's sitting in the stands. Um, I'm getting my at bats and, you know, I didn't get my first hit. But that started it to where the next game we played um, East. Oh, what was it? East East Central Oklahoma. I went three for four and had a walk off single to win the game. Dude, and nice. When you walk on the scene and you've got everybody dogpiling you as you round first base after scoring the winning run in the um, bottom of the ninth. Man, I was kind of on cloud nine. My dad was there for both those games. Got to see it, and you got to. You got that that reward, right, of all that work, all that mental toughness of all those coaches that said, no, you can't play here, or, we're not interested, or you're not good enough, or you're overmatched, you're overpowered. Am I? Yeah, kind of mentality. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I, I, I carried my own weight um, offensively to where I was getting in the lineup because I could hit the ball. I was challenging these guys that were 22, 23 years old, and um, – as not as a 19 year old and I helped I wasn't a huge I wasn't a mainstream you know power guy profile guy for the team but you know I was I worked my way to fifth in the order and I think I finished my Wesleyan season hitting 244 um but you know I'm on the scene I've achieved that dream and I've achieved that 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 goal that I've set for myself so I ended up being Red River Athletic um all academic all conference Wow. And um, I got that award, and we we lost out in the regional tournament. I think LSU Shreveport beat us pretty good. Um, but starting starting to feel like you're part of the team and kind of growing with it. Um, and then my sophomore season, same thing. You know, it's, it's mine for the taking. Now I'm not competing as a, a true freshman with a junior transfer guy that 
kind of was pe- uh, pigeonholed to not pigeonholed, but pegged to be the starter. Now it's actually a position competition between him and I, and man, everything was going the same as it did my freshman year, busting your butt at practice, getting in, getting after it, maintaining it. And I actually, this is where that story takes that, that, that hard, that hard curveball inside. Um, <laughs> I was playing second base. There was a guy on first base. We're inner squatting and you know, guys are fighting for jobs, right? Fighting for playing time come the spring. It's probably October, middle October. So we maybe got three weeks left to like actual fall ball, fall season um, left. And we're in an inner squad. There's a guy first and third. There's two outs. My team's up by one. It's late in the inner squad. There's a lefty hitting. I'm playing second. Lefty gets jammed, rolls it over, gets by the pitcher. So I have to charge in. And I'm charging in. And if I don't get that out, the guy in score, the guy in third scores and it's tied. So I'm trying to do everything I can to keep that lead for my pitcher and my, 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 my team. And so I go to field it, and when I go to field it, the guy on first base was 6'4", 250. And as I come to field it, he's trying to make a beeline to second base, and we collide. He tears my rotator cuff, my labrum, and fractures my shoulder blade um, right there. And all I remember is... I end up by third base. It's one of those pains to where you've got two, two guys going full speed and comes out later. The doctor told me, he said, Glenn, when you went to field it, you anticipated that contact. And when you anticipated that contact, you braced for it. And I, I actually had the lower center of gravity. So when he plowed into me, he actually hit the ground first. And that doctor said, if you would have let him just run right through you, you would have been fine. But the fact that you braced for it and you created that, that stress here. And when he hits you, it didn't have anywhere to go, but yeah, to snap you, you absorb, you absorbed all the impact and there was no like letting the motion, the energy kind of deplete itself with it. It's kind of like with, I, I'm a big like NASCAR and IndyCar fan. So like, it's like when those guys hit the wall, it's like, you know, there's like, there's certain angles you want to, see a race car driver hit the wall or like the guard railing because it's going to dissipate the energy from that different thing. It's just like, if you're going like head on or getting T-boned by another driver and you're just like on a single point, you're getting all the energy in one place. So yeah, I totally get what you're saying. It sounds like that's what happened with this accident. (laughs) Yep. Yep. So he hit me. I end up by third base because I'm, I'm a run it off kind of pain guy. You stub your toe. I'm probably a good 40, 50 yards away trying to run it off. Um, so I go to the doctor and he says, yeah, you fractured your shoulder blade. You, you tore your labrum and your rotator cuff. He goes, um, what happened? Or one of the nurses came in. She goes, were you in a car accident? I said, well, no, I was playing baseball. And she goes, we've never seen this kind of like impact damage on a shoulder. And because it's my non-throwing shoulder, it's my glove hand. And so so that's bad news, right? So yeah. here you are putting in all this effort. You're starting to see the gains. You're starting to see the progress. And now you're, you're on IR. You're on the DL. You're, on, you're, you're not a part of the conversation because I didn't want to have surgery. I, I didn't want to go, the, you know, have that. So where we did the non-surgical options like the PT, the rest, and it just wasn't getting better. 
because I thought, okay, well, it's not my throwing shoulder. I don't need it. Um, <laughs> well, it come to find out when you're right-handed and you're going to swing and your pull shoulder is your front shoulder, you kind of need a shoulder <laughs> blade rotator and a labrum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that shoulder blade, that collarbone area, like everything around there, it kind of attaches to a bunch of different parts of your body. So there's no like, oh, I'm just going <laughs> to use another part. It's going to be okay, Doug. It's not how it works. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, so right then and there, you've got, now you become, I'm going to work my way back. I've got to work twice as hard to get back to where I was. The doctor said, all right, you know, take the rest of the fall off and then maybe you're ready to go. Um, come, come spring season. If you're not going to have surgery, just kind of let it heal. You know, that, that, that sometimes does work in a non-throwing shoulder. And I said, well, let's do that. Um, and so we spent all off season just, getting jacked on the bottom half, doing squats for days. And, um, you know, still just throwing to where I'd have somebody catch the ball. And then I was still throwing it to try and keep this arm in the, in shape. And well, spring season rolls around. I, I'm at, I'm able to compete because I don't want to be, I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to have shoulder surgery and be out a year, you know? Um, so I'm probably 60%. 65% when spring season rolls around and wow. I don't want to lose the progress that I had, but I ended up playing, I ended up playing six games. Um, and I ended up having the conversation with coach. Let me have, let me take my medical red shirt because it's just not there. I don't want to burn a year of eligibility because I'm pushing to play, but you're not, you're not getting the quality out of me that I want to be putting out. And so I take my medical red shirt, but when I do that, things things start to get a little go south, um, mm. relationship wise between you know player and coach and things like that. To where uh, when I decided to take the medical red shirt, I was no longer invited to be in the dugout for the games. You know, I had to turn your stuff back in and things like that. Mm. And that 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 rubbed me the wrong way. That's not how I envisioned the, the road to recovery to get back to. And so, so I had a buddy at tech that says, Hey, come on, I can get you, I can get you a walk on opportunity or and a tryout here. And so I kind of, I closed the book on Wesleyan probably halfway through the spring semester, knowing that I'm probably not going back come the spring, uh, come the fall, just because, Number one, my shoulder. I'm going to have shoulder. I actually plan on having shoulder surgery that summer. Um, and so I guess kind of closing that book. I have a lot of buddies that, you know, we just kind of went our separate ways because they're a part of the team and you're not part of the team. And that's something that nobody prepares you for mentally as an athlete is when you're injured, when you're not a part of the team, when you're not competing, when you're not in your normal mindset and you have to, you have to, pump yourself up every day because you're not, you're not that person. You're not that identity that you have, you've been. And I think that's, that's a real struggle for a lot of these kids, whether it's high school or college level that get hurt or get injured and have nothing to fall back on because I was always Glenn, the baseball player. And for about this six, eight month span, I was Glenn, not the baseball player. And I had nothing else. I didn't know who I was. Um, so I finished Wesleyan. I start looking at where I want to apply and where I want to transfer to, um, you know, and I'm looking at it as maybe this is the writing on the wall. Maybe this is where I hang it up and maybe I'm done. And, you know, that's okay. Real talk, Glenn. you know, 
conversation between me, myself, and I, like, real talk, <laughs> let's figure this out. And, you know, you pray about it, you pray about it, and I said, okay, I'm going to go tech. Well, I get to tech, and, you know, I spend all summer T-work, T-work. I, I have shoulder surgery, and he, he, this is where it gets really – Here's another curveball blown away <laughs> outside on a 3-0 fastball ex- expectation. Yeah. Um, yeah, interjecting real quick, what year is this? Yeah. So this but, is this is 2012. So this okay. is the spring of 2012. All right. Um, school ends, season ends at Wesleyan. Probably not going back. Um, line up to have shoulder surgery for what's now diagnosed as thoracic outlet syndrome. They're not too much worried about the shoulder healed as well as it was going to heal. And I was starting to be able to build the strength, catch the baseball. But I could sit right here, guys, and tell you I could count to 14. And then the whole arm would just fall down because it would fall asleep because there was an impingement on on the the veins is the way they described it. And you'd lose circulation. It would just come down. And so there was that issue. And then there was some nerve damage in that and that left side. And so I have the shoulder surgery. They take out my my cervical rib, you know, chick stick scars. You can't see it, but it's right here, chick stick scars. Um, <laughs> there you go. And they cut out that they cut out that rib. I go home from the hospital, and I'm like, all right, you know, that's behind me. Now I'm gonna try and get ready for this, you know, spring season for tech. Uh, go in, walk on, you know, have the conversations, and you know, be good to go and start over, right? Well, after I had surgery three days later, I woke up at 514 in the morning and I couldn't sit up. I was like, man, that's weird. And so I go to the couch and I'm like, man, something doesn't feel right to where I can't, I can't take a deep breath. I can't expand my chest. And I was like, well, let me take some more pain, pain pills. You know, that's why they give them to you. Maybe I'm just being soft (laughs) and like, I'll get over it. Well, and I didn't get any better. So my mom was running my little brother to school at Texas A&M, um, and she was coming back. And she gets back, and I'm on the couch, and I'm like, I don't feel good. And so we call the doctor, and my temperature now is 104.5. Man. And wow. the doctor's like, man, you got to get back to the hospital like ASAP. I'm going to call and have a room ready, like bypass ER, and you know, don't stop until you get into the, uh, the room. And well, what happened is by them cutting, cutting that cervical rib out, they actually caught a part of my lung because your lung kind of runs up here. Oh. And when they caught my lung, my lung filled up with fluid and my lung collapsed at 514. So when I woke up and I couldn't, something was wrong, that's because my lung wasn't working. And when I tell the doctor that story, he goes, so you, that was 514 in the morning and we get to the hospital about 1130 at night. He goes, you've had a collapsed lung for over 16 hours. Well, you know, I didn't want to come back. <laughs> and so, so the lung collapses. I end up catching pneumonia in the hospital. And I end up missing the first, the first two weeks of fall semester at Tech for fall of 2012. Wow. And so I don't get the start. I don't get the, the momentum that I was hoping for. And so... We push off, uh, I push off, like, I've got to have rehab for the lung uh, to, to regain the strength. So I kind of write off the, the fall semester. Um, I'm at Tech. I'm trying to, 
Texas Tech is a lot bigger than Texas Wesleyan University. To where <laughs> oh yeah. If it if it wasn't for a couple of great friends that I have helping me get the class, order my books, and figuring it out, why I'm still on pain medicine trying to make it to class so professors don't fail me because I've already missed two weeks of school. <laughs> um, I had that challenge, and so as I'm starting to rehab and do the physical therapy, um, I still have the aspiration of of playing, but. The Texas Tech option for the D1, the coach that my buddy had that I had a relationship with a little bit. That was Dan was Spencer. Yeah. yeah. And and then Tadlock came in. And when Tadlock came in, it was, we're not, I'm not going to honor, you know, I understand your position, but I've got my guys. And him and I had that conversation. I said, man, that's fair. That's fair. So now I'm at Tech to where that door closed, right? Yeah. And so you're like, all right, I've got this shoulder deal. I can't blame him. Um, he did say, you know, if you get up to, to speed, and you, you know, you want to come out, not, not 2012, 2013, but 2014, 2015, come on. Um, but what I found, and probably, probably one of the best balance points between, okay, now I've got to get a degree to where you're starting to see that writing on the wall because you mm-hmm. blow out your shoulder you stop. You stop having the conversation with some of the scouts that that were around Wesleyan and some of those things, and you're like, "It's it's it's it, it's here. It is here. It is. You know, life's throwing it at you. You know, what are you gonna do with it?" And I wasn't. I wasn't ready to be done. And wow. what a lot of kids don't understand is, or the opportunity that's there is, you have the collegiate team, and then you also have the club team. Mm-hmm. And the big major universities have the NCBA, which is the National Club Baseball Association, which runs very similar to NCAA, but different rules. You know, your season's not as long. You're not you're not devoting 24-7 athlete. You're, you're trying to get a degree, but you're also trying to play at a high level and not just intramural softball or, or men's softball in Lubbock, Texas. And so yeah. I, got, I got on with that, and... That's when I started to teach myself how to hit left-handed. So I knew I knew this wasn't the same. Uh, the the pull or even the quick twitch muscle to field a ground ball on the infield side. And so they had practices in the fall. I was at practice starting to teach myself how to hit left-handed. When I came home for winter break, it was that's all I was doing. I was at the high school and try to hit left-handed. Teach yourself how to hit left-handed so you can play and so you can hit. You know, club ball, they're throwing anywhere from, you know, 80 to you know, a couple of a couple of the guys throw 90, 91, 92. So it's it's still competitive ball. Yeah. It's just for guys that don't want that commitment or for whatever reason are focusing on school. And, you know, they see the light at the end of the tunnel, but still enjoy the game and have that passion. Mm-hmm. And so finding that was awesome because it kind of gave me a chance to to rehab. And my my goal was to use that. Mm-hmm. As maybe as my as my rehab assignment, essentially, to where my goal was then to get to the point where I had another scholarship offer on the table to go play somewhere else. OK, to where, you know, get situated here to where I'm working towards a degree. But if I get back to the athletic level that I was at and have an opportunity to go play somewhere else, I'm going to go take that opportunity. Got it. And, and you have your uh, options open. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And just kind of played it like that. And. Man, I can't tell you the feeling that you have as an athlete when you come back from an injury and having success. So 
I come back. I've developed a relationship with these club guys, and the Texas Tech club baseball team is one of the top ten in the country okay. at this point. And to come in and to help those guys and to hit left-handed and to have some success while playing outfield, because now I've transitioned from second base to outfield because the nerve damage in the shoulder. And, you know, it's a lot easier to catch a fly ball or a ground ball rolling at you into the outfield than it is, you know, a one-hopper or a quick, you know, backhand. Um, I just didn't have the quick twitch. And so have success there. Uh, That's my... You start to get you start to get your ears complicated. So te- technically, that's my my junior year, sophomore junior year, and man, I love it. I enjoyed it. I end up being um, Gulf Coast North um, Player of the Week my first week back after shoulder surgery after rehab, and nice. you know you start to regain that passion. Like man, this is what I've been waiting for for almost a year um, to get back on track and. We play that season, and it's fun. We end up losing in the regional tournament to A and M, and it's not all ro- it's it's not all sunshines and rainbows. You know, I talk about you know all the good things, but I've made. I'm gonna hit this point, and I'll, I want to see what you think about it, Barrett. But I've made two yeah. critical errors in my entire life on the baseball field. One was in that Little League World Series, to where. I was playing shortstop and I missed a ground ball and we ended up losing the game. Okay. Um, and you're like, man, okay, we're 0 one in pool play. And then we end up on a, on a slide and we don't do very well. So I felt like a lot of that was on me, but in this regional tournament, we're playing, we're playing A and M and we're up by two in the, in the bottom of the seventh, the A&M has last at bat and I'm playing center field ground ball to me. And I'm playing, I'm playing fairly deep because I'm trying no doubles, nothing over my head. And they've got a guy on first, first and first and second. We're up by two. He, the ball's coming to me. They had a hit and run on, so they, they're already in motion. So the guy on second's going to score because the ball's coming up the middle. He's going to score to where I'm trying to cut down that guy that's on first that's going to try and try and score. Mm-hmm. Well. Yeah. I charge it and I take my eye off of it and the ball goes under my glove. And in center field, there's nobody behind you. And so as soon as you realize you've missed it, you turn around and that ball seems to never stop rolling. And you're just in this mad chase to get to this ball as fast as you can. And then to get it from the 400 center field fence sign all the way back to home plate before the guy that hit the ball scores the inside the parker. And, well, let's just say the guy scored the inside the Parker. We lose the game, and we're out of the regional tournament and don't have a chance for the NCBA World Series. So, you know, I mean, it's not all, it's not, it's not always good things, right? To where, yeah, all, yeah. you know, it's true to where there are good moments and bad moments. Um, but I just wanted to hit that because, you know, it is – there's two sides to every story, the good and the bad. So, you know, from hitting home runs, Tom and Hawking home runs to, you know, hitting the home run off a change up in your first collegiate inter squad to, you know, the injury to the errors to the the other side to where it's 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 not easy. You know, the mental side of baseball, there's a book, Barrett, that let me see. Um, yeah, right here. Give me one second. 
called it's called the mental game of baseball. Okay. By, and if you guys haven't read it, it's it's a very good read from how to approach the game and to how how to be mentally tough and to be a mental baseball player because you have your roller coaster, right? Ups, downs. Yep. And it's a good book. I'll I'll shoot it to you so you can put it in the notes or however you guys do it. But okay. it's one I would recommend just, you know, if you guys got, you know, high school kids that watch or college kids that watch, it, it's a good read to, you know, teach you a couple of tricks from the big leaguers to just um, psychologists on how to, how to mentally deal with the game of baseball and the ups and downs. Man, that so man, a lot to unpack there, Glenn. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. It's just, that's an incredible story. Before you sustained that shoulder injury, had you had any injury anywhere close to that up until that point in sports? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> that was the first big injury of my entire career. Wow. And so, man, and, you know, it's funny that we've, I've never asked you, Trav, did you play, Travis, did you play baseball at any level whatsoever? I played like youth league up until about like, 10 or so years old um so like circa 2003 uh and and this is just kind of like yeah youth like recreational kind of like city league type of stuff but not anything like beyond that that was super competitive like i never made it past uh never made it uh like past machine pitch or anything like that like just very (laughs) very base level like i uh i'm not a super athletic like built guy to begin with like i stand (laughs) I stand at six foot and 150 pounds, which like on most recent doctor's appointment that I had that I weighed that is like the most that I've weighed in my career. So like I grew up as like the scrawny kind of like not athletically <laughs> built kid at all. Um, really like I, so my kind of like background with sports and anything like athletic wise is yeah, just kind of tried some stuff between like baseball and, uh, basketball and among those things like as a little kid uh bowling was my thing for there me growing up go. like i actually bowled right. like quite uh yeah i spent many a saturday mornings through my childhood from about like second grade all the way through early high school at the local bowling alley um and then uh high school through college is when i did marching band so did marching band in high school was part of the going band at texas tech um so i uh yeah, so I mean that is where that's where I developed more of like my hand-eye coordination and any any sort of athletic qualities from me like the 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 stamina that you build like getting out there in August when it's like just boiling hot and uh uh out there under the sun playing music, learning shows uh for all that time and then doing that for a good several months into the fall. That's that is where my sort of athletic background comes from. There you if go. you can really call that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know it counts. You getting that getting that PE credit. <laughs> yes, sir. Marching van. So I, I point that out, and it's funny we've never mentioned it on the show before. So you go to machine pitch, I go to kid pitch, and you, you're you're the polar opposite, Glenn. You're deep into baseball. You're playing at a super high level. You're seeing ninety plus mile an hour pitches, but you talk about the mental game of baseball and. Um, Man, mental. Um, if you were to do it by a percentage, how much of baseball at that level, how much of it is just, you know, physical, kinesthetic, hand-eye coordination, and how much of it is mental? At, at high school? No, 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 no. At, at the level that you were at, uh, club okay, college. Okay, college. Yeah. So at college, it's probably 
70 30 and it, it only goes up from there on the mental side to where the higher the higher you get competitive wise the more mental it gets because that's when you can't just be the strong powerful guy that's all mm-hmm. talent yeah you gotta you gotta have the a good head on your shoulders to make it through and to last and to be to be good nice so you know the best players in baseball are unsuccessful 70 percent of the time so automatically you're not successful uh i mean 30 percent i mean that's woefully failing by any objective measure but and yet you can be 30 percent successful you're good so you're automatically used to not hitting you know, there's the old school mentality of a hit is success. And that was the mentality of baseball. And then you get into saver metrics and then it switched to getting on base. So it's not just hits. It's more old school Pete Rose style. But mental, man, uh, think about this year. Yerman Mercedes, he's in the majors. He gets called out by La Russa. He goes back to the minors. He says he's going to retire, but then he gets back. That to me is just the manifestation of... A guy just going through a mental roller coaster. I mean, can you speak to that, Glenn? I mean, I, I, I mean, what is that headspace like? Well, you got to think that uh, he's what twenty twenty two years old. I don't know exactly, but he's a young guy coming international player that's probably never had that level of pressure. He's never seen that 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 hardship or that failure to come on to hit the show and have the kind of run that he had in his first two, three weeks, and then to have struggles, he's probably never had the struggles like that before in his life. Mm-hmm. And to be faced with that and to not be strong mentally because you've always been the physical ability and you've had the talent, you, this case in point right here, Barrett, is you see that. And what happens? You get the the false sense of self. You, you, you lose your self-confidence. You, you lose your your desire to be there because – it's no fun when you're failing or you're struggling. It It's no fun. But that's where I'm glad, number one, I'm glad he didn't retire. I think he, he'll be pretty good for a good while. <laughs> yeah. But you can just see with these young kids that are thrown into these positions and have success and then have struggles, you almost want the struggles before the, before the reward. And I think that's true for a lot of society on the, on the upcoming generations. <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, uh, man. Uh, but so, so, from your own experience, and you know, you're reading the book, just you know, uh, in summation, just give us a synopsis. I mean, I mean, in baseball, like, what what is the key? Do you have to have short term memory loss? Do you just take it day by day instead of, oh, okay, I'm gonna try to do well today. Forget what happened yesterday. It's all about today. I mean, what is the secret to overcome that, Glenn? Man, it's 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 to be mentally prepared, you know. And I, I told this to my high school guys right before our state championship game this year: is mm-hmm. guys, you're gonna lose, you're gonna be losing this game, you're gonna be winning this game. Expect and be prepared to be losing. Don't be surprised if you're losing. I'm telling you right now, you you are gonna be losing, but you're also gonna be winning. And just setting the having the mental um, latitude to fathom all the different stages of the game of baseball, to be, to number one, do what you need to do to be prepared. If you can be prepared and say, I've done everything I can possibly do before this game, then you're already setting yourself up on the right foot. 
to where the guys that don't do everything that you stay out late or, you know, just <laughs> take it for granted. Okay. You didn't do everything you could. You're not, you're not building credit for the baseball gods, essentially. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so, you know, you, you take it day by day, short term memory, but my, even now positive thoughts bring positive action. And I think that that that's true in anything you do. Uh, positive people have a lot more success than negative people. And it's it's real easy to get down when you're 0 for 21. Like, man, I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn or I couldn't hit water when I fell out of a boat. But to find something. And that's what I love about baseball is you could lay down a bunt and then all of a sudden you go 12 for 12. Wow. It's, it's something that you can't explain. It's, it's just baseball. There you go. It's the same. It's the same game that's been played. Same dimensions: ninety feet, ninety feet, ninety feet, sixty feet, six inches. Uh, that's the beauty of it. Is you've you've had people all go through that struggle. There's twenty. There's roughly twenty two thousand people to ever play the game of Major League Baseball. That sounds like a lot, but go to Globe Life Field. Filled up half capacity. Those are all the people that have ever played Major League Baseball. And over half of them didn't even last, what, a year or two? So they were there. So, man, that... And, and and that's why I love having you on here, Glenn, because, I mean, you got you have the experience, whereas we don't. You know, here we are. We're doing a baseball podcast. We're just casual fans. You you've been there. You've you've had the injuries. You've had the ups and downs. You've you know, you've hit dingers and tomahawks and, and you've had to pick up left handed like Pete Rose and and Chipper Jones, by the way. So, yep. you know, you keep making it right from both sides of the plate. Um, so. You have that goof up in that game. Um, so, do 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 you are do you continue with uh, club ball after that? Yeah. So the hardest thing you have to do is look your you look your teammates in the eye and say, "Man, that's on me." You know, I, I just my error just cost us a chance to do that. Wow. And you, you feel it for those seniors. You feel it for everybody. But you know that that like I said, that's probably the worst I've ever felt on a baseball field because of Man. the team that we had the the potential that we had to to go and win it all and if i would have just played it safe and said okay you know we're going to go tied we're going to go into extras as opposed to trying to win it on a on a low probability success rate um maybe we're having a different story about this instance but yeah so that season ended and then um i get back into dallas and i'm coaching for one of the club teams that i played for to where i'm still getting my work in and I'm starting to go to um, D2 schools throughout the summer for my my tryouts to try okay. and get my foot back in the door. Mm-hmm. I've got one year left of eligibility. Um, I even hit up a, ju- a couple of JUCOs. And, um, man, it's a little bit different than a senior in high school where you're hitting right-handed and you know you're the contact guy and you, you can put the ball where you want it to where, all right, now you're a speed guy trying to hit left-handed. You're trying to hit the ball on the ground and use that – um, left-handed batter's box to your advantage and it's a different type of player and I had I had two offers I had um, offered to go to Northwick and go back there and to do one more year at Juco and then I also had a an offer to go to um, Oklahoma Wesleyan up in Oklahoma and getting to that point was such a triumph for me mentally because you had everything taken away 
everything that you ever wanted, everything that you'd worked for taken away from you on, on a freak accident. Yeah. That guy could have shot, could have stopped, should have stopped because we're on the same team in an inner squad, but man, he's playing 110%. I'm playing 110%. I don't fault him for that. It just, it happens. And, um, so I'm faced with a decision. Do you, do you turn down this degree, um, that you're working on at, from a premier university for my degree program to go play? And that's probably that, that was probably one of the tougher decisions of my life is, are you satisfied with where you're at? You played college, you, you've got hurt, you blew your shoulder, but you've gotten back to the point that another college coach wants you. Mm-hmm. So you've made it back to that level. And I elected not to, not to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm working on the degree. I've got the club team. Uh, at this point, I realize my future is probably not baseball. When you kind of have that injury that you have, it's it, it's tough. You know, I'm not going to say nobody comes back from it, but it's it's tough. The writing's on the wall. But I said I'm gonna I'm gonna enjoy college. I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to play club team, which is still competitive. It's not it's not lax. It's not lackadaisical, and work on getting this degree and having a career to set me up for the rest of my life. And in a way, Merritt um, and Travis, it, it's kind of a blessing. If I hadn't blown out my shoulder. I would still be trying to make it. I would be 29 years old trying to make it, whether I'm playing in Juarez, Mexico, you know, independent ball in Paducah, Kentucky. <laughs> I would still be trying because I'm not a quitter and I'm, I'm, I, I wouldn't quit or give up on a goal like that. But when this happened, it was kind of like, I, the way I see it is God was like, Hey, you know, this is going to happen to you. I want you to go this way. I'm going to provide you with, you know, the degree, the school, and then a supplement for this void that you're going to have. And you're going to get back to the point that you were at before you got hurt. You're going to have interest to where that's going to check that box to where you've, you've done your job to get back to where you were. Now here's this other path for the long term on life. Otherwise I kid you not guys, I would not be married. I would be playing single a independent ball, Living, you know, five hundred dollars a month, living in bunk beds with the other, the other minor leaguer guys. Oh yeah, and the high life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I'm trying to live the dream, right? And kudos to those guys because a lot of my buddies that got drafted, you know, they lived that lifestyle to where they they hit 28, 29, and you know, writing's on the wall for them just like it was for me six years ago. And it's well, I, I I'm gonna go do this instead because. Like I said, everybody, everyone has that point when the cleats get hung up, um, either by choice or by not not their choice. And so I stick with the club team. We end up um, doing that again, uh, 20, 2014. Um, and you know, you talked about going down memory lane. So before the before this podcast, I was going back and looking kind of at my college stats and. You know, see, try and remember what type of player I was in case you guys asked. <laughs> and uh, so 2011, you know, I hit 244. Okay. Uh, not bad. I was I was pleased with that. Not where obviously where you want to be, but true freshman playing against guys that are 22, 23, 24. Um, not yeah, bad. Not the, the 2012 season, just the redshirt season. Um, and then that first season back with the, the club team on my – work back my year after surgery 
I ended up hitting 417. And now, granted, <laughs> that's not D1 guys, yeah. but it's club guys throwing 80 to 91 mm-hmm. in a competitive setting to where it gives you that. We practiced every day after class. Dang. We we had that mindset. We were that program that our club team was comprised of all JUCO or college level guys. Wow. It wasn't you were taking you know anybody that had ever seen a baseball before. It was no, we've got a bunch of guys that either got hurt or decided to do college as opposed to you know the twenty four seven full time athlete. And man, we were good and it made it fun to where it was still that competitive. It was still that seriousness and it was still that level of baseball that all of us were used to at our past college. And so it made it fun. It made it competitive and, um, played 2014. And, um, in the summers I would coach the club teams when I come back home. And then 2015 was my last year, mm-hmm. uh, my senior year at school. And every there, my last year, I was fortunate enough to have everything click. And as an, as, as an athlete, it's, very, it's rare to, wow. to have it all figured out, whether it's your timing, whether it's your swing, whether it's your approach, whether it's the mental, whether it's the physical, whether it's the finesse. Whether, you know, all these things that you work on, that you spend time in the cage from the time you're hitting off the TNT ball at four years old to I, think I was 20, 22 at this point. I figured it out. I could walk in, walk up to the plate. I knew my mechanics. I knew what I was trying to do. And I was able to figure it out. I was able to find it and to, and to, to hang on to it for an entire season. And I had the most successful season that I've ever had playing baseball my last year um, playing on that club team and also managing. So I was also the president of the club team, head coach, <laughs> center fielder, hitting leadoff. And switch hitting. Wow. (laughs) There you go. Player manager, baby. (laughs) Just like like Pete Rose. (laughs) You you know, when you want things done a certain way, you make sure you're in a position to make sure they get done a certain way. Oh, yeah, man. And when you were batting 417, that was with you batting left-handed, right? Man, bouncing back, batting, batting 400, just like we say at the end of every show, man. So you're playing, you're having fun, you know, you know, it's competitive. It's not D1, uh, but man, that's cool that you're, that you were still able to compete at a relatively high level. I mean, being able to hit 80s, low 90s, I mean, dang, you know, uh, give me 500 tries and I, and I, I, that ain't happening. (laughs) So, man, um, uh, before I forget, you talk about talking with Tim Tadlock, um, and your, uh, how many interactions did you have with him? Probably two. Um, it, it was just, it was just the transition in and out. Um, one conversation when I first got on campus and then, um, I think there was maybe one more as I was starting to get back healthy, but it was never material. It's kind of that first conversation, and that was all right. Well, man, I kind of transferred out here with that idea. I moved out to West Texas, 341 miles away from home, and <laughs> I'm starting over, and I'm not an athlete on campus. So, um, there was a mental hurdle there that I had to get through. <laughs> Yeah, so you didn't really get to have a good gauge of his personality. It was a very, very brief interactions. 
Yeah, yeah, it could, it may have been different in different circumstances, but yeah, then they started then they started winning, and he started he started running that program um, up and up the rankings, and it was yeah, yeah I'm not yeah. Yeah, nobody questions his <laughs> nobody questions his authority these days. Like that man has a has a lifetime contract now. Like I mean, he's he's yeah. basically in position to be Mike Martin, like what he was for Florida <laughs> State now for Texas Tech, just be there through the rest of his career. Yeah, sign him on that lifetime contract right now, and I I'd, I'd be all in favor. Oh yeah. Well, hey, that's cool. You say you 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 you've gotten to talk with him. You know, he's a big deal up in West Texas. So, um, man, you continue all the way through, and you you talk about your degree. What degree did you end up getting at Tech? So I ended up getting an energy commerce degree out of the business school as a business administration degree. Um, okay. That's where you're basically negotiating like land deals for uh for like drilling and mineral rights and things like that do it every day it's it never gets old (laughs) oh yeah so man so you graduate in 2015 that club level uh is that the highest level of baseball that you ever that did that it was at the peak level of baseball that you played yeah that's the peak performance and the peak results i got out of myself and my Mm -hmm. my ability um was probably that that 2015 season on that club team, um, rivaled by the success I had, just uh, maybe there's sentimental value to that freshman season as a true freshman at Wesleyan for everything you went through and the actual to earn it and to get there. But and when I say I found everything clicked, like I could fine tune my swing in and out. I knew what wasn't working. I was hitting the balls on the screws every time I, you know, I was making contact to where I, I get to say I found it. Not every athlete gets to say that they found it before they had to hang it up. And so I'm blessed to find it. Glad I was able to say I found it. And uh, that's 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 where the collegiate career stopped. Um, I still play amateur ball here and there um, with the NABA and through a couple of different organizations here and there. I actually just got we got back from a tournament in Las Vegas for um, Memorial Day, and so okay. still still swing it, still you know show my high school kids that you know I still play, and um, you know I still get after it, and still you know it's still the same story that I had when I was playing in college. I'm usually covered in dirt at the end of the ball game, sweating. You know I can't. This is the nicest hat I have, guys. All my other ball caps are sweat-stained and, like, crusty, and this is the (laughs) nicest one I have. There you go. That's awesome. So now you just... You went up to such a high level. You continue to play, and it's just because you just love doing it. You love the grind. You love going out there. It's just it's become a lifestyle, a part of you, right? Yeah. When you're an athlete and you, you grow up playing the game and then you go to college, that's all you think about. That's all you all you do all day long, and your mental mindset is always for your your field ability. You know what can I do to get better? How can I get better? How do I get to where I want to be? And you challenge yourself as an athlete with those questions on what do I need to do to put myself where I want to be? And it's up to you to make that happen. And just that it translates very well. And you know, as a as now a you know grown and you've got a you know a corporate job and you, you go through recruiting and hiring people. Man, I look for athletes because there there is a mental fortitude of 
I'm not going to fail and I'm going to work harder than somebody else that man, it it's almost unmatched. And like I said, it translates very well into anything, relationships, work, faith. I mean, it's the athlete mindset is truly something special. Yeah, that's awesome that you're able to translate that into into all facets of of your of your life. And the the fact that you I mean, you you went pretty far. I mean, you, I mean, you get, I mean, tip of the cap to you. I mean, you went <laughs> certainly a lot farther than we did. Certainly a lot farther than a lot of people do. I mean, uh, that's just a lot of a lot of cool experience. I want I, I can only imagine how um, that just that that must impact how you're able to appreciate the game of baseball is, is, is that, I mean, we watch it as casual fans, but I mean, but you know, do do you still keep up with baseball now? Do you, and, and if so, like, how are you viewing it? Are you viewing it as a, you know, just casually or are you dissecting every little thing that they're doing, the pitch counts? Do do you have your, uh, do you have your piece of paper that you're basically scoring as you go through, you've got the Walkman with the headphones and, uh, (laughs) going old school that way. No, not, not to that level, but no, I still follow the game. Um, and I think I was, I was blessed by getting thrown that injury situation. I kind of had baseball taken from me and I didn't give it up. Okay. To where, me, baseball and I, we got to leave on mutual terms, and not a lot. Not everyone gets to say that. Sometimes it comes crashing down pretty hard. Sometimes you get hot, cut from your high school team. Sometimes you get released from the Double A team, and it's it's nothing that you did. It's just it's baseball, and I've got a lot of buddies that kind of left salty with with the game and the relationship for the game, and. They could care less. They don't follow it, and they've picked up golf. But the way baseball and I, we parted uh, from a competitive level was mutual to where I didn't give it up. It was taken from me in a sense. And, you know, coaching now, it's I have, I have probably a stronger love for the game than I did when I was playing because there was that, that press that you had to perform. You had to do every little thing the right way. And as a perfectionist, Baseball is probably the worst sport for perfectionists because, like you said, you're only successful three out of ten times, and they call you successful, but you failed seven. Yeah. And so, no, I, I, I dissect the game, uh, especially now that I've coached for the last – I'm going on ten years on my coaching resume that you look for those certain things. You you understand the situations, and, you know, I want, I want to get y'all's take on, you know, how do you guys feel about this – the game switching from a small ball game to the long ball game. I'm a traditional guy, and I think baseball on a, on a small ball level is still more exciting than the long ball game and the launch angle. Yeah, uh, Trav, uh, you want to you take a stab at that? Yeah, sure. it's kind of one of those like yes and there's a both kind of with it to it. It's like the, the long ball is certainly fun to watch. It creates those explosive moments, those big like, you know, you like – energy and momentum swings for a team uh blowing open like a bigger lead like the the, knowing when you know when that ball goes up when you get that no doubter uh sound off the bat where you just know like okay that's getting out of the park here uh like knowing like hey where exactly is it gonna land um you know there's excitement around that but then there's also you know there's the 
I can also respect too and see the more of the excitement in the traditional parts of the game. And, you know, like playing more it traditionally can cover up maybe more of like the, the lack of, you know, maybe like explosive power on a team if they're focused on getting more of, uh, getting more of those on base hits and working the small ball, getting your bunts down, things like that. Uh, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's a tricky situation where we're a culture that's moved more and more towards instant gratification and, uh, and, and like entertain me right now, big picture aside, kind of, uh, <laughs> kind, kind of mentality. Um, so there's, there's exciting parts of both of it. Um, but, yeah, it it's tough to say which exactly I like more. You know, it's I think you know as a Rangers fan right now, the the big hits are the only kind of way we get <laughs> excitement right now. And I think you know if maybe there was more focus towards the small ball game, maybe it'd be a little bit more bearable in this rebuilding process right now. But uh, yeah, boom! I'm interested to hear your uh, <laughs> your decision, uh, your your thought process behind this issue yeah so uh, i mean it's a convoluted uh, um you know situation when episode three we talk about sabermetrics and how uh you know because of the oakland days and you know you got billy bean and those guys uh they are taking um just a money ball to an extreme it, it used to be hits 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 uh, kind of like your mindset too glenn but now it's uh, you know get on base get on base uh, no matter which way you can you have players like adam frazier and michael brantley who are professional hitters and they're still in the game but those are becoming fewer and farther in between uh you got guys like gallo who are on base machines they're gonna strike out they're gonna walk and they're gonna hit bombs it's the three true outcomes that has become more part of the game and and but and it's funny because our podcast is called No Doubter, and uh, no doubters are cool. You know, chicks dig the long ball, but um, we really- tell our we tell our <laughs> listeners to bat four hundred and swing for the fences. There you so, go. I mean, the idea Bravo. is like, <laughs> yes, yeah, do it all. You know, be Babe Ruth. So, but no, I mean. You know what's more exciting than a home run? An inside-the-park home run. It's the anticipation. The small ball, when it's a a no-doubter, there is no anticipation in the name. A no-doubter. As soon as it leaves the badge, you're like, okay, it's gone. And you're like, woohoo. But no, the anticipation, stretching. It's just like Pete Rose. It all comes back. Stretching singles to doubles, doubles to triples, and then going for that inside-the-park home run. That is, It's when you don't know what's going to happen. That... That's exciting right there. I mean, I, would it- I personally love seeing the batter be able to get uh, a ball like down, down, down the right field or left field line, like, and it just goes just inside fair where, you know, you've then, oh, <laughs> you're yeah. then like, okay, the, the outfielder's out trying to track it down. <laughs> and then you're, you're, they're working it through the, uh, the motions there of trying to, uh, prevent runs from being scored. And it just that, yeah, you, you engage all parts of the game that way. And it's, it's a lot more stimulating as opposed to just, Oh, no doubter. <laughs> that ball's out of here <laughs> at that point. Yeah. yeah. Man. Um, so you're watching the game. You're you're dissecting it. You're paying attention to the pitch counts. So, you know, I mean, the you know, what the the selection of pitches, you know, is, is he's, he's losing command of the strike zone. Man, I mean, is that is that how, you, how you're in tune with the game? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. To where you're saying, okay, you know, where would I? You, you look at it more as a. I look at it more from a coaching perspective on how okay. I'd set up my guys as opposed to, well, where's their second baseman or where's their center fielder playing. I look at it for more from a coaching perspective for the whole game, unless I look at it from a hitter side to where, okay, Joey Gal is coming up. What's my job as a hitter? And I take myself through that at bat and that approach mm-hmm. into that at bat to where, mm-hmm. what am I trying to do? Here's the situation. What I kind of put myself in the hitters, hitters uh, into the batter's box, and see what happens to where, man. It did, I'm looking fastball. Oh, he got fastball. And I'm, I'm trying to mentally keep my hitter's mind engaged. There you go. But um, big picture-wise, it's just what are you trying to do? How are you trying to score the runs? And, you know, how's that pitcher looking? And what would I do in this situation? What would I call if I'm, you'll go like this one, Johnny Oates or, uh, <laughs> um, you know, any manager in the big leagues or any manager at any level, just – what would you do in that given situation? There you go. That's the. That's a good way to watch the game. You can. It, it's very possible to watch the game as just a casual fan. You know, you're just blissfully just like, oh man, that's cool. But I, you know, I've watched games hyper focused, but I can only imagine that hyper focused for Travis and I is a different version than hyper focused for you, where it's like you have the experience. <laughs> You've been in their shoes, eighty plus, low nineties. You know, <laughs> uh, kid pitch the one year i did it what they're throwing maybe maybe 40 <laughs> tops i mean no comparison baseball it's got to be the hardest sport out there would you i mean you might be biased but i mean come on H- hitting a ball it, come i on. think it is i think i think it is the hardest sport the only thing that i would i would put relatively close to hitting a base hitting a 95 mile an hour fastball is a penalty kick in soccer Mm-hmm. But you get into that, and it's more of a guessing game. I think I've seen the sports science on it, and it's you're you're guessing. There's no the the kicker kicks the ball. It's not you're reacting to where he kicks it. You're guessing to where yeah. base 100 percent baseball is the hardest sport. Let's <laughs> argue. Somebody come at me. We'll have the conversation. Oh, yeah. I mean, you have randos in the audience hitting half-court shots every now and then. You get a rando to try to get hit a 95-mile-an-hour ball, it ain't happening. (laughs) No. No, you've seen the videos of NBA guys or NFL guys trying to step into the box, and, man, they look silly. They can't (laughs) even... They look silly. At least I can make a layup, and, you know, I've got somewhat of a jumper, but... It's it's not comparable. Yeah. And and I'll say this. That, so after taking time off to before I started playing amateur, the first time I got back into the box, the guy's throwing maybe 87, maybe, not, no, I'm sorry, not 87, 78, 80. Okay. And you just, he throws it, you're like, man, I know he's not throwing that hard, but it's faster than I remember it. <laughs> and... That's that's me going from where I was to okay, guys throwing seventy eight eighty, and it it is fast. And I just took six years off. If somebody never played or walked into it, said I can do this, there's no shot because <laughs> I think baseball requires that progression and that that consistency to stay to stay on pace and to stay keep your timing. Otherwise, and it it, it is difficult. 
Yeah, I think there's a reason both baseball and soccer are two sports. You know, they, I think, okay, here's the thing. I think by and large, this is just a complete outsider scrub opinion here of somebody that just is, uh, like, like looks at things from the outside. You know, I think back to like my high school days and like people who I knew who uh, like were playing sports and everything. But I think the specialization of sports is just like way overblown, way overfocused and is stupid and just involves a lot of like politics to the point that it just, it's not worth it. Uh, with the exception of baseball and soccer because of the skill levels that those two sports, and I think what you've highlighted over these past two hours, Glenn, of just as you really progress, especially with the sport of baseball, that yeah, there's just so many on like the 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 physical plus the mental nuances and understanding of so many vast situations uh, of what you're going to approach within the game that yes it requires that sort of specialization that you just don't have to put in in other sports yeah baseball is not really god given there's there's a <laughs> lot that goes into it all right, so Glenn, we've had a lot of fun over these last couple of hours here. We're kind of uh, we get more towards the end of this conversation now. We're going to really switch kind of your mindset more deeper into the fans' perspective, uh, learning more uh, about your coaching career and everything. So uh, I'm I'm personally a big baseball culture kind of guy. Like, you know, we, we talked a few minutes ago about like, hey, how like to what perspectives do we nerd out and kind of see all the little different nuances of the game? Like, man, for me, the... I'm very like much more casual in that regard of like, man, you got to get me like closer to like home plates, like get really kind of as close to the field as possible to really truly see all of that and really be as engaged in that aspect. But I've really come to appreciate the, the culture of baseball of uh, sitting in at the game itself at the stadium or the experience I can get like watching it from home with like a really good broadcast. Uh, with that in mind is, uh, have you travel outside of, um, outside here of seeing games at globe life park? And I assume you've seen games at globe life field. Uh, if you've been to the new stadium this year. Yeah, I actually got to go to the first game that fans were allowed for the <sighs> NL, uh, for the NL championship series between the oh, Dodgers fall. and the Braves last fall. So I got first game, my dad and I, we were there as Very kind of cool. a token and a repayment for him taking me to my first game. I took him to his first game at the new ballpark. Very cool. Awesome. I, uh, I've i been to several different stadiums myself. Uh, Rangers Stadium, been to Minute Maid down in, uh, down in Houston. Chase Field out in Phoenix a couple of years ago when I visited for a weekend uh, over the summer. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in New York City where my cousin lives and just got married. And so I... While I was out there in the city, got to go to Yankee Stadium and see the Yankees play the Phillies Mm -hmm. out there. Um, So I've been to several stadiums now, and I was inspired to uh, to kind of start baseball travel myself and going again the in-game experience. Some of these uh, at eventually the goal for me is to go to every single uh, stadium in Major League Baseball. Um, But I just want to ask if you have been to any other stadiums uh, yourself, and if you remember those experience kind of any. Things specific from those experiences that uh, that have stuck out. Yeah, Travis, I got the same goal: trying to see all the stadiums um, because it's every stadium has its own um, uniqueness. It, it's 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 never the same experience at different stadiums. And I'd have to say, I've been to I want to say I've been to Colorado, Texas, uh, both to, 
um, the old stadium and the new stadium. I've been to Fenway. I've been to Pittsburgh. I've been to Florida. I've been to um, the Braves, SunTrust, um, to where I'm making my rounds, and I'm going to pick up uh, Tropicana Field here in about uh, 11 days. Wow. Oh, nice. But I'd say my favorite... My favorite is Fenway, but I really did enjoy Pittsburgh. PNC Park is a beautiful place to see a ball game, and if you ever make it, um, Iron Works Beer is the beer in the stadium that you've got to try. Nice. Very cool. I'm going to actually be – is this Pittsburgh Ironworks Beer? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to be yeah. actually at Fenway in a few weeks. I'm taking a trip down, up to Boston. Nice. Um but yeah, I know both Fenway and Pittsburgh, I've heard PNC Park are both, they are on the smaller side of ballparks, Fenway obviously, but PNC is also a little bit of a smaller park, but it's like right there along the river. You've got uh, over the outfield, you see the downtown Pittsburgh skyline there. Just I've, uh, I, have a, I have a few friends I've made here in Dallas that are from Pittsburgh and they have spoken very, very highly of PNC, State, uh, PNC Park and that you know, even if you are just a casual baseball fan, that it's just... It's just an all-around one of the best Major League Baseball environments there. Um, the just the the in-game experience that you get, uh, the atmosphere around it. Um, so I, I certainly would love to uh, to visit Pittsburgh uh, sometime soon and get Pittsburgh. Bottom line is one of my cities I really want to visit sometime soon. Uh, but PNC Park for sure, I absolutely want to go visit. Um, so we look now really at all this is a very general and kind of open question here but all these years later now um what how do you describe your relationship with the game of baseball currently after you've progressed through this time as a player now into being a coach you, you talk about kind of like the changes that you know you kind of it, it's a bit of a line of resistance of the the old school versus the moving into the new school mentality as a whole like yeah what is your relationship with the game now i still love it I still wake up every day and I'm um, still sitting in meetings thinking about baseball. Um, <laughs> there you go. R- relating business concepts to something that you that happened like on the field or like a <laughs> chat with a coach or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Or even if I I get to take batting practice with my high school guys, I'm sitting in a ten o'clock meeting like, man, I get to take batting practice. Or you know, we've got a game this evening. Today's game day. I still get to have that mindset, and I. St- I just, I love the game. I always have. I always will. Um, as long as, as long as certain things stay out of the game and it stays just baseball, I'm a fan for life and I don't ever see that changing. And if I can instill and create that passion and the love that I have for the game to the kids I coach and the kids that I get to mentor, man, that's, that's that handoff that I want to make sure these kids just love the game. They may not go to play after high school, but I want them to be able to, you know, play catch with their kid or to sit at a ball game and to appreciate the game and to say that they played the game the right way. Very cool. And what, uh, what grade level are your guys you're coaching? So I coach the varsity. So I've got freshmen. So 14 through 18 year olds. Nice. And, 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 and what school is, is this? This is Miss Midland Classical Academy in Midland. Um, it's a private school, but in Texas, you guys are aware we have UIL and in order to be a coach for a public school, you've got to be on staff. And so I, I kind of found a way around that 
because private schools are associated with TAPS, Texas Association of Private Provocal Schools. They don't require you to be on staff. So I get to keep my day job that I earned my degree in, that I'm working for and building my career professionally on a business side. And then I get to still have my my avenue to coach and to be a part of the team and to uh, to build that coaching resume. And so as a coach, have you had uh, any guys that have moved on to the next level that you've coached? Yeah, yeah. Um, like I said, I've been coaching... We're 2021s. I've been coaching since about 20, 2011. So I'm going on 10 years of coaching some form or fashion of baseball. And I've had two make it. Um, I've got one that should be going, should should play college baseball somewhere. I'm working on helping him get recruited right now um, for after his senior season being this school year. And so how, are you really follow, do you follow along with the college baseball game, like the, the D1 college baseball game? Uh, what was your fandom look like in that area? Man, I was impressed with Mississippi State this year. Um, nice. I'm a big tech, big tech fan. You know, I love, it. I love to see when our boys go the distance and what that program's turned into since I stepped foot on campus. And then, um, you know, I, I like the JUCO level. I like the passion that those kids have. I, I like the I like the pace of that game. Um, I, I stay in tune to try and stay in tune with all of it all around the country, kind of based on what my guys what my guys are wanting to do degree wise, or how I see they fit, and understanding other coaches' systems to where I can I can honestly and legitimately pick up a phone call and say, "Hey, I've got a guy that you need to look at." That's awesome. Yeah, I. Uh, between the two of us, uh, Boom and I, I am very much like a ginormous college baseball fan. I fell in love with the sport back in that 2014 uh, uh, run the Tech made to the College World Series for the first time. Uh, my roommate and I, we went to like the opening weekend series that I believe it was Indiana, who was top five, came to Lubbock for a non-conference series, and we won like three out of four games. And <laughs> I just like there was the hype that was kind of built around the team at that point. I just followed it on uh, those those last couple of years. I was there at Tech. the The team was quite solid. So it, I, I being there at uh, at Dan Law Field, the I was sold on the college baseball experience and, you know, I've really geeked out and kind of nerded out on it, uh, the, the past, uh, almost 10 years since at this point now, and just fall in love with it more and more every year. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's always a new crop of guys because Tadlock has just turned that place into an absolute factory when it comes for next level talent. So it's like, I'm having to practically memorize a new roster every single year, but I, love the the college game uh really want to make it out to omaha in the next like two or three years tops and get the experience of going out there for the college world series you won't be disappointed i got to go um to rosenblatt when fresno state upset georgia we were there for when they won at game three to see the dog pile and to see just just the passion and that's one thing about college sports that you can't replicate on the professional level is the passion and just the yeah. the beyond the, beyond the lines, you know what's what's in the crowd. You know everybody's there, everybody's in the colors, everybody's there for that purpose. And man, it's it's hard to match. The only time I see it matching that level of intensity from the fans is playoff baseball or um, the World Baseball Classic. I'm in full agreement with you there. Like I, 
I, I banged the drum for college baseball because of like, I have not been to Omaha yet, but because of what you just described is the passion. And I think the, the, the environments that come out of college baseball games, like it's, it's certainly, it's better. I believe than you know, the minor league baseball, um, I think, you know, in, there's certainly many programs across the country where like you're getting just as good of <laughs> a talent wise environment, if not better with some of these programs. So we're looking at programs like Vanderbilt, Mississippi state, Oregon state in recent years that like they're absolutely stacked. It's like, Hey, if you live regionally in these parts of the country where either like, you know, that team is there for you or like, you know, they're going to be coming through, go see a game. Like you will, you will be sold on the college baseball experience. It's yeah. something else to see. Hundred um, percent, I agree. So, what made you decide to pursue the the high school baseball coaching route? Yeah, I mean, be, we we've talked about kind of your overall encompassing love for the game, just like being around, still sticking around it. But what has kept you, gotten you into that? Ultimately, kept you around for it. And it's going to seem very very simple, but just being around the game smelling the grass, being able to walk in the lines to, to play catch every day. You know, there's a lot of guys, a lot of buddies of mine that haven't thrown a ball since they graduated high school. And I'm like, guys, you want to play catch? Man, I haven't played. But just to be around the game, to talk baseball, to, to have a competitive mindset, once you graduate and you, you're done playing, you, 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 there's this transition into, call it, real life. And there's not a lot of competition. You're going to work. You're, you're, you're grinding to where, no, I want to be competitive. And if I, if I can't play, I want to be a part of something that's a competing machine. That's, that's one unit working towards one goal. And that was really, I needed something. And mm-hmm. I'm not good at a lot of things, guys. I, I grew up playing baseball. I'm good at baseball. I got a degree in land. So I'm good at land work. And, um, Man, that's I had to get back to what I was good at to where I, I, I'm not a good fly fisherman. I, I, it's hard for me to shoot straight. I don't uh, Midland doesn't have mountains or backpacking opportunities to where my golf game. I'm a baseball guy. I don't play golf like I got a baseball swing and I still think golf would screw up my baseball swing. So I had to find something and I ended up finding a wonderful opportunity that God led me to to this school here and. Um, I've been volunteering there for the last three years. Nice. Just, uh, uh, you know, when, uh, when you see your kid, the, the kids under you, when they succeed and when they fail, do you feel those highs and lows like 10 times as much, uh, you know, when they succeed, you're super happy when they, but when they fail, you, do you, do you try to empath? Do you just, whether you realize or not, are you empathizing with them? You feel bad for them or you feel really good for them in the extremes? Yeah. Yeah. You, you live and die on every pitch just like they do. You guys would have been at the state championship game. You would have seen that roller coaster of emotions from, you know, the 14-year-old on the team to the coaches, I'm 29, the other one's uh, 45. You know, everybody's living and dying on each pitch just the same. It's, you know, it's a kid's game. <laughs> exactly. How did y'all do at that championship? And we won. We won. We kind of, we shocked expectations, and um, we ended up winning in the bottom of the seventh with um, one out. We had an infield single and scored in one state and you talk about anticipation you talk about the raw emotions where 
you feel everything that those guys feel. There's a picture, and I'm in the dog pile with all 24 of my guys to where I never got that opportunity to like have the dog pile at the end of the season. And for them to work so hard to get to that point, you know, everybody feels that success and everybody feels, feels down um, when you're down. But, you know, that's, that's where you, you're the coach and, you know, you work it in to where guys, it's a roller coaster. You know, you're going to have good games. You're going to go 0 for four. And that's that short term memory loss to where I need you to come back mentally for tomorrow and just get them on the right path because I try to teach them the way I played the game. Positive action or positive thought brings positive action and give me all that you can every day. Don't, don't take it for granted because one day you're going to have to hang them up and trust me, you'll want one more at bat. You'll want one more opportunity to throw the guy out. You'll want one more pitch sequence. So you won state. How does that moment rank um, among your, the all the sport moments you've been a part of growing up, all going all the way to club, just where, where does that moment rank? I'm going to say it's second, Barrett. I'm going to say it's second behind that day I had as a fruit freshman when I was challenged on my ability and I was able to step up to the plate and deliver and just fulfill those shoes that I was unproven until that point, but to win state, that I, I you can't place you can't put you can't put words in it. I I'm doing dishes the other day and I'm like, we won state. I'm a state champion. I may not be a player, I was a coach on the team, but you you still get that tag and it's no matter if it's UIL six A or if it's six man football or taps one or three A, you're still the best in the state at your level. And there's something to be said about that. And especially for my kids where three years ago we had seven boys and two girls on the entire baseball team, and we were getting dog stomped left and right. My kids didn't know what a double play was. They didn't know how to tag up. And to get them to a point here to where we're competitive, we've got a baseball culture going, and the the program's starting to get a little bit more um, uh, recognition on the schedule when you're playing some of these bigger schools. Man, that's that's awesome. That's really cool to, to hear that firsthand perspective that you've just shared there. So you, you are in the business and coaching of molding young minds, uh, with life lessons and grit and fortitude that, uh, goes beyond the baseball field into life, things that they will carry with them through the rest of their time. Uh, that kind of leads into the <laughs> question around the current scandals of baseball, such as the Astros <laughs> cheating scandal. Uh, the Red Sox have played with the, uh, the gray and the black area, uh, a bit in recent years too. We've got the foreign substances crackdown. Uh, baseball just can't stay out of controversy in some, former fashion uh but how how do you how do you evaluate these things how do you think about them how do you see them as like a stain on the game is it just a is it just you know that that this is kind of how it is now like how do you unpack these things in your mind well so the astros (laughs) that 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 could be a whole nother podcast um but i don't think you should cheat you know, number one, I think that's worse than betting on baseball when you're you're not letting my guy into the Hall of Fame, but you're going to continue to give them the trophy and the recognition they need for, you know, stealing signs. And, you know, it was evident there to where um, 
I think baseball needs to be fair. And I, I, I think it all comes with technology, right? Mm-hmm. So where you go back 50 years, what's the only constant that's changed with the game? It's the, the amount of technology that's used. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, 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 any publicity is good publicity. <laughs> and I think base, baseball was struggling there for a while on four-and-a-half-hour games between the Yankees and the Red Sox that viewership was just in the tank. And so they had to do something. They're shortening the games. They're finding ways to make it faster. But they're also, with the good comes the bad. And I don't think it, I don't think it taints it. I mean, I'd, I'd still rather watch a MLB baseball game as opposed to an NFL football game, yeah. because um, certain reasons here and there, politically, not politically, you know, personal stance on things and things like that. But I just I, there's no room for cheating, and when you deliberately have actions that defy the integrity of the game. I think that's that's worse than what um, what Rose did, and you know I'm a little biased because what he did didn't didn't affect any of the games that you you know that we know of. But you know that the Red Sox and the Astros, what they did defied the integrity of the game, and you know you Darvish being a Ranger, you know I I felt so bad for him after that World Series mm-hmm. because they lit him up. Like twice, a candle, like yeah, like sixty nine candles on an old lady's birthday cake, like lit up, yeah. and you know that wasn't his fault. He lost millions of dollars after that series on his on his next contract because oh he's lost he's lost a you know MPH or two, but I I don't I don't look at the Astros the same way since then and. You know, anybody that wants to cheat the game of baseball and take the easy way out, that's that goes against everything I stand for on the work hard, do your best and, you know, you know, work hard mentality. Yeah, you know, I can respect what you're from you saying there, you know, you know, I invite your candor there, you know, you know, I grew up in Houston, I'm an Astros fan, but cheating is cheating. They broke a just rule, uh, stealing signs with electronic equipment. It's it's a rule. It's a good rule. It's worth having. And, you know, I respect your stance through and through. I mean, it's it's even hard for me. I'm more biased, but, uh, you know, and you know, I still pay attention to them. But uh, I totally respect where you're coming from, Glenn. Because because, uh, I mean, cheating's been around in sports, but uh, you want to do it the old-fashioned way. You know, just like you guys had to win your way into that Little League World Series, you didn't get that yep. by. I mean, you, you 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 worked hard for it. So, yeah, uh, and I'm very interested to get your perspective on it. Um, talk to us about how much of an edge that was. If you're at the plate, you hear a trash can banging, you know 100% that the next pitch coming your way is an off-speed pitch. How much of an advantage does that give you as a hitter? Huge. Huge, because you get to sit on it. And if you're going up to the plate looking for one pitch, that it cuts out your mind having to process five, six different pitches, five, six different arm angles, trajectories, spin rates, speed, speed variations to where you know it's either going to be fast or it's going to be slow to where you're, you're, you're narrowing down what that pitch is going to be and you're making it easier as a hitter because you know what what's coming. <laughs> Yo, yeah, I mean because then and I I, bet, I guess that's part of the you know what makes it so hard as a hitter is it it's the guessing game every time. 
But yeah, as a hitter, you're going up with an approach. So I'm walking into the box. Okay, what is, what is this guy throwing me? You know, the last at bat, or you know, what was my last sequence? What did he throw the guy before me? Is he a guy that's going to try and get me ahead? Does he have a power fastball to where he's going to want to use that fastball to get way ahead? Or is he an off-speed guy that's going to dance around the plate and kind of work me in, work me out? And if I go up there knowing that it's either going to be fast or slow, you take all that guessing, all that guessing work out and all that mental, like, kind of compromises a hitter on what's coming. And you know what's coming. So it, that's like saying, okay, here's a pitching machine. It's going to come fast or it's going to come slow. You're going to be able to sit back. You're not going to get fooled. And you're, you've got a better chance to make contact. Hands down, it's a huge advantage. And if I'm a pitcher, I'm pissed about it. Oh, yeah. My fires blew the whistle because pitchers were losing their jobs because the Astros were lighting them up. They were getting designated for assignment, and they never went back. You know, and, and it, it, that's their livelihoods. Their dreams crushed because, you know, the Astros had an, an unjust advantage. So I can totally respect them for blowing the whistle there. I mean, so... Knowing what pitch is coming, is that more of an advantage than steroids? Yeah, yeah, because I've never taken steroids, so I don't know if that would have made me 6'4", and I'm dropping bombs, and I'm getting drafted out of high school, and maybe we're having a different conversation. But, you know, there's a way to go about it that you don't have to, you know, there's a guy on second base, right? Mm -hmm. Catcher gives the pitcher the signs. The guy on second base is standing right in line. So here's kind of another side to that coin is, if that catcher's just putting down one finger, knowing full intention that that second baseman's looking towards the plate for contact for the anticipation, at that point it's on the pitcher and the catcher. You got to come up with a different sequence mm-hmm. because that that guy on second's going to relay it to the hitter. And some, you know, is it is it closed fist? Is it flat hand? Is it you know is my lead different? Am I doing something to give you a signal? Because that catcher is not doing his job on on disguising what pitch is coming through through calling signs, and I think that's that's a traditional way to do it, and that's on the catcher. But to use something that's outside the outside the the naked eye, parameters of the, yeah. yeah, outside the naked eye, off the field, and a mechanical technological advance, advance that's that's where you got to draw the line to where it's it's frowned upon very. Heavily. Uh, yep. Yeah, <laughs> cheating's bad through and through. I got it. You know, it's coming out that more people are doing it. It's coming out that it's an arms race. And the more it comes out, the worse it looks for the sports. I mean, you know, it's so, uh, but, you know, we'll find out. Uh, um, the latest is is foreign substances. I mean, do you, do you agree with the MLB crackdown on supposed use of spider tack this year or not? Well, being a hitter and being uh, never a pitcher, you know, I think those guys are going to try and find whatever advantage they can have, whether it's Ben Gay, whether it's, you know, KY Jelly, whether it's uh, Icy Hot or whether it's Lip Balm on the lips or something tucked somewhere. They're always going to try and add to that RPM on their on their spin rate or anything to, that they can use to get ahead. They'll find it to where band, substances on the baseball, like a spitball, you can't do it, right? To where... I can see where they're coming from. You know, you got all these guys just hitting bombs and the home run rate and the, you know, the long ball era. Like, 
I'd, I'd feel a little bit uh, like I was getting the short end of the stick when my ERA goes from three to balloons up to five because of the way they make the baseball. But you can't, like, you don't make it obvious. Like, if you got something, <laughs> but I, I don't think they need to crack down. I mean, you, you look at some of these guys that are doing it without, you know, how much, how much, I don't know how much it can actually benefit. I'm sure it adds to grip and you add the RPMs, you add the, the spin rate, you add maybe a couple miles an hour. But if you, as long as you're not going out there with pine tar on your forearm, like how much stuff can you really, yeah, d- really does it, get? Does it warrant the umps basically going full TSA on you? No. and like? <laughs> no, I was embarrassed when I saw that for the first like time. Like Max Scherzer like, practically like stripping on the field. Yeah. There yeah. yeah, like, come on, like, yeah, you're was, not. It was amateur well, I mean, hour for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't know what they can get away with. I mean, and to do it publicly like that, that's, I, I, I don't like the the gamesmanship of that. Yeah, it kind of that that's almost feels like another angle of the ump show right there. It's like you're you're just wielding your power and trying to make a show out of yourself out there and taking away from the game on it. It's. Not cool in my perspective. Well, the worst part is is they've caught they've caught what two guys with it so far out of the whole league. At least one. Hector Santiago is the yeah. one that I've been aware of, and then they they might have caught someone else. I'm probably well. I knew the other one, and I mean, you got one guy, so clearly they're not doing it. I mean, what, it's a witch hunt to where let's go back to let them pitch. You know, I don't. Yeah, but yeah, as a pitcher, as a hitter, I always felt like pitchers were always popping Advil and trying to figure out some substance to make them feel better or throw harder. Yeah. So we know you're a traditionalist in terms of how you view the game. Um, that is one perspective here in a landscape of a lot of shifting perspectives of where Major League Baseball is struggling with popularity right now uh interest among youth and really just kind of the the hold that once held within american sports so uh even with that in mind does major league baseball in your eye need to do anything to reverse its popularity decline trend uh what can it what can and or should it do within your perspective of being more of a traditionalist or even putting that aside to reverse this, uh, this declining popularity trend? That's a, that's a tough question because, you know, if you never change, you die by the wayside, like the, you know, the iPhone four or the, you know, the first iPhone, if you don't change and you don't adapt, you don't last. Yeah. But baseball has been a game that's been around for over a hundred years. And so it's, the game hasn't changed, but the people and the players within the game are changing. And, you know, I, like you said, I'm a traditionalist. I think it needs to go back to, to, to small ball. I think it needs to go back to the unwritten rules and, you know, the little bit of um, showmanship with the game to where, or maybe showmanship's not the right word, but, um, you know, go in and do your job and do what's expected of you. Um, I don't think you should show anybody up. I don't, I, I don't think that's the way the game needs to be played. And, you know, to have your professional athlete, you should not woohoo every time you hit the ball. You know, yeah. imagine Babe Ruth, every time he hit a home run, he flipped the bat. Like, 
that would get old, right? Seven hundred and fourteen <laughs> times get old to where to where do the little things right and you know I'm gonna pick on Joey Gallo here for a second because I don't think you should be a big leaguer if you can't hit over two hundred. I mean the days of being a complete ball player, it's it's gone. And it, I just find that frustrating to where you're fine with the launch angle and the fireworks and the fancy cleats and, and all these things. But at the end of the day, play to win the game. And I like the passion that some of these young guys bring, but they make it too much about them. Me, me, I, I, as opposed to this is the team and this is my job to do on the team. You know, you look at Kim Griffey Jr. He had swag on swag on swag, but he didn't flash it as much as these guys are flashing it now. And he was a lot better than some of the guys that are flashing it now. And it's, it's, it's unnecessary. And I'm still behind. If somebody pimps a home run, you know, the next guy gets ear hold because I've been <laughs> that guy that's gotten the ear hole on the backside when somebody pimps it. And it's, you know, there's a respect thing and there, there, there's a gamesmanship of how the game is supposed to be played. And I don't, being a traditional guy, it's I don't care about the TV ratings. Baseball's uh, uh, it, baseball is a sport that's passed down generation from generation. Mm-hmm. I found the love of it from my dad. Mm-hmm. That's never going to go away. But if the game continues to adapt and change to modern culture, modern politics, modern, you know, you're going to lose some of that genuine fan. And when you lose those genuine generational fans that have been um, molded to love the game. You're driving away your biggest audience. Mm. I don't, I don't care if you get, you know, a thousand new uh, viewers because Fernando Tatis has sweet cleats or a cool haircut or a TikTok. You lose the generational fans that are true, passionate fans for the game of baseball. They're the ones that are going to be there through and through, regardless if you have Tatis, whether you got have Lindor, whether you have. These power guys, they're they're in it for the long haul. They're in it for the game. You have these certain fans that jump in because of cool TikToks, cool cleats, and you know they like the bat flip. Man, that's that's the wrong reason to like the game, in my opinion. Yeah, it, man, that's a really interesting perspective. It's just, it's, yeah, I mean, what you what what you're talking about is more superficial. I mean, the the game is there, and that's what's so beautiful about it. Um, but man, um. You know, the generational passing down, that is, that's banking on it being passed down. That's banking on from father to son. A lot of times, you know, even mothers pass it down to their kids. So that's banking on that trend continuing but all it takes is one person who it's the dad's like hey baseball's cool it's just like yeah i don't like it they fall off the next one they they passes on they fall off too so it's and and this is why we like to ask our interview guests because it it is tough it's tough to find the balancing act i mean the ken griffey's of the world you know swagger but not just pimping it the whole time. It's it's tough. Um, you know, it is. I guess teams are still making profits, but but you know, viewership is going down, and that it translates to money. Um, and have you have you read Moneyball or watched the movie at least? I've seen the movie. Um, I'm halfway, a quarter of the way through the book. 
Oh, okay. So that one's really going to open your eyes. And I mean, if you've seen the movie, you I mean, you basically get the idea. It's, you know, you, you talk about winning the game and, you know, the quote from the movie that we included in the episode three is that, you know, and this is a, it, it's a fictional quote. It's not, a, it's from a fictionalized character to... And the the quote is, they think of players in terms of buying a player. It's like, when you get a player, you're supposed to get wins. And in order to get wins, you get runs. How do you get runs? You get on base. So while... And, I, and I'm more like you. I love I love Michael Brantley. I love I, Adam Frazier with the 300-plus batting averages. You know, it's more a hit's more exciting than a walk. But a walk gets you on base, which helps you get a run which helps you win the game. It's just, it's, it's a different way to do it. It's anticlimactic, but it money ball is you're extracting it to a science. Um, I mean, basically jump, taking all these stats, jumping it into a computer and just spitting out outcomes. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? (laughs) Man. So I've seen that movie. 20, 20 times. Yeah. And I always find myself on the 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 person, the human side of baseball to yeah. where you have scouts, you have professional development to, to find these guys. Um, I found it entertaining. I don't know if I would have liked to be been an A's fan for that <laughs> experiment. But <laughs> as somebody stepped out to try something new and – to put together the team that way with that mindset, mindset, good for him. You know, the A's tried something. They're still playing the game, and they're breaking it down to a very, um, a very numerical, analytical level. Which kudos to them. Did that give them the advantage? If they made the playoffs with a low um, payroll, with yeah. a low payroll, and that's that's the trade off. Like, what what are we getting into? And that. I liked it. I, I think it was it was a good experiment. However, I don't believe a computer can tell tell you everything about a guy. You know, there's a lot that the manager has to do, and I, that's where I disagreed with that that approach from uh, Billy Bean. Right? Mm-hmm. Is he took his manager out of some of those decisions on mm-hmm. man who's got a hot hand, who who didn't have a good flight between cities, who you know who's my guy, who who does well under pressure. A computer doesn't doesn't take that. And if you're trying to win every single game on a one-game basis, you can throw all your numbers and analytics out the window. And that's what happened in the playoffs to where they got into the series. You're starting to play one to two games where that that overall large sample size of an entire season is is irrelevant when you come to down to one game because in one game baseball is the one sport where anything can happen no matter who is on the field man there you go what an incredible perspective right there um you know there's some speculations with the collective bargaining agreement coming up that uh, um rules might be changed there could be a um, a, there could be a strike. There could be a you know a lockout. You know it could get ugly. Of course, both sides they're going to want to have a season to to play, so they're going to have to come to some kind of agreement. But um, uh, you have Manfred flirting with the idea of the universal DH. What are your thoughts on that? 
Man. <laughs> Being a guy that wasn't stuck to the DH role, I was never married to it. And I think I enjoy games where the pitcher has to hit. I Again, that's the traditional way to play. And it adds another facet to where you can't, you may not be able to run through your bullpen and have all these guys coming out throwing 98 miles an hour when you have a seventh, eighth, and ninth inning guy. That pitcher spot throws a wrench into that, and you actually have to manage a little bit differently. You've got a pinch hit. You, I, I just like the way the lineup moves and and the options that you have when the pitcher has to hit. Now. Pitchers probably make the argument they don't want to hit, but you can't tell me you're a major league ball player and a pitcher doesn't like to hit. Like they live to hit, and they'll they'll talk a big hitting game regardless. But I I don't think it needs to be universal. I think they leave it the way it is to where mm. one half of the side of the one half gets what they want, being the DH and the long ball, and you know another guy that slots in hitting 20, 30, 35 home runs a year. Um, give me, give me the National League to where you got to have a guy on the bench that can lay a bunt down, or you got to have you know your pitchers go through a rigorous get the bunt down scenario during spring training, and you know actually have to do something to where it creates a different situational um, management situation. Yep, uh, it, that's a you know it's an interesting perspective. You know uh, the 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 school of thought is that people love offense and you know pitchers are going up and they're doing attempting sack bunts or sack flies or a lot of times amounting not to anything. You know Degrom for like the first month or two was batting four hundred, but that's an anomaly. <laughs> so right, yeah, but I don't know. We'll see. It, it it is cool to have the differences the you know the the american league didn't always have the dh they adopted it um don't know at what which point it had because they wanted to compete with the national league the og league and i don't know it it, it is funny to see to, to see that happen so i mean we got that and you say that baseball hasn't changed the dimensions have been the same the mound was lowered I think it was 1968, the year of the pitcher. That was when Bob Gibson was crushing it. And the career, you know, league-wide ERA was at an all-time low. They lowered the mound a couple of inches because when you're higher up, you get, you know, a faster ball. Do you think... Or tilt. Yeah, or, or tilt. Um, do you think the mound needs to be moved forward or back at all? No, no I, th- I think you leave it the way it is. Guys are getting stronger. I mean, you look at the arms coming out of the bullpens these days. I mean, it's it's not rare anymore to see 100 miles an hour coming out of the bullpen. It's it's common. And if it hitters are if it's still a challenge, and that that would be a good point maybe to, you know, if I had all the time in the world, something I would look at, you know, what what is the hitter average and what is the pitcher ERA? the seventh inning to the ninth inning. You know, that that last third of the game, when you get these power arms coming out, you're really challenging guys. And as a hitter, you know that this guy's coming out throwing gas. He's got a one-two combo, and it's going to be pretty tough to hit. Okay, what does that look like? You know, the hitter may have the advantage the second time, third time through a starter, but you see these managers changing the way they manage the game to where 
likelihood of seeing a guy three times through the order is starting to dwindle, dwindle, dwindle. Um, I think it just stays the same. You know, at some point, the human body will not be able to throw faster. The human hitter will not be able to hit it further. And the big thing you'll see is how they change the baseball. How do they make these baseballs? Is it the Australian rule in 1930, which led to uh, a, a league average of 300 for your hitters? Or do they, do they deaden the baseball? Um, I think I think it should stay where it's at. I, I don't. I mean, unless I mean, what's your opinion? Like, yeah, I think it should stay the same. I mean, I'm not completely married to it, um, but uh, it's. Would you uh, go further or would you go closer? No, 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 no. I mean, it, if it were to be anything, it would probably be moved further back because. Oh, for sure, I vote for that as a hitter. Like, yeah, give me more yeah. time to pick it up. I'm all for it. Oh yeah, moving it back. Even a foot, would that make a difference? Oh, for sure. For sure. You're just adding more time than I can see it because you get big, tall guys like, uh, for example, Chris Sale. What is he, 6'7", coming from the left side? By the time he strides off that mound, he's already cut that down. He's 6'7", with a stride. He's probably got a 6'7", foot stride. So he's letting that ball go at 54, 53, 52 feet. As opposed to you know a five ten guy letting it go at fifty seven once you get that push, so you pull those guys back, you're giving me more time to see it. They're not they're not gonna like that, <laughs> man. It, it, and that whole at bat, it's a matter of milliseconds. But you're here to tell me that the those extra milliseconds, um, the extra feet that it has to travel, the better look that you get. I mean, you you said you're you you yourself experienced it moving from mounds in high school where are you know 58 to going to the full 60 feet six inches but then of course they're throwing faster but yeah it's just uh you know you know offense there's schools of thought it's uh, they love offense 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 so they juice the ball like two or three years ago it's like oh no let's end it again because we don't like the three true outcomes it's it's hard. It's and then you got guys <laughs> Jonah Heim for the 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 Texas Rangers. He hit two walk off home runs in a row about a week ago. The first time he hit a walk off home run when he was walking around, he takes the bat and he slams it on the ground in a walk off situation. Is it okay in your eyes, Glenn, to do anything close to that? I think that would be the only situation that you, you could have a little bit of leeway. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, there, there is passion. You just won the game. So it is a, a time to celebrate, you yeah. know, now in, in, in the first inning, second inning, <laughs> man, I'm, I, yeah, it's going to piss off a pitcher. If I'm a pitcher and somebody's doing that, like I'm pissed. And, <laughs> but for Jonah Heim to, you know, walk it off, you know, the helmet that comes off before you touch home plate, I think, I think you're safe there and there's a showmanship right to where baseball is a game of respect yeah on the field to the other player and to the game Mm -hmm. and when you start to show up the other guy you're not showing that respect Mm -hmm. because Jonah Heim he can strike out three four times a game no problem and you don't see the pitcher putting him down (laughs) 
Exactly. And so there's a little bit of give and take, and I'm a guy that kind of rides on, you know, steady karma, steady, steady juju that I don't want to rock a ship if I don't have to. I don't want to get my guy ear hold, but in the situation you described, like that's where you could see a lot more emotion than any other time um, on the on the ball field. Oh, yeah. People gave Kirk Gibson crap uh, because when he hit that walk-off, he was rounding the base and he did the fist pump a few times. I mean, yeah, but, I mean, it, you just walked it off. I mean, walk-offs are the most they're arguably the most one of the most exciting things that can happen in a game um you know you got the inside the parks and the the small ball but walk-offs man i mean that's where it's at <laughs> so <sighs> yeah and i think i think that that's that's warranted right you yeah. just won the ball game yes. you made the difference in the game to end it and to give your team the w and say hello win column now, do I think you parade around the bases and you stutter step around third and you do a flash like, you know, Ricky Henderson thing? No. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's where they say let the kids play. And I disagree 110 percent with that. I think, you know, <laughs> you, you're getting these kids that are 18, 19 years old and they haven't had the seasoning to get into the big leagues to where no Junior, this is the way you go about playing the game. This is the respect. This is the tradition. This is, you know, if you don't respect the game, somebody else on your team's gonna gonna pay the price. And you know, I, the unwritten rules, right? We could, you guys could probably spend an entire podcast talking about uh, unwritten yeah. rules and what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, we've talked about it. Yeah, so, yeah. So let me let me ask you this. <laughs> we were talking about the universal DH, right? Uh-huh. I would trade the pitcher to be a DH to give me extra inning baseball back the traditional way. Because now it's set up as you start a guy on second base in the 10th inning and you you play like that. Give me the traditional, you hit the 10th inning, you keep going down the lineup, you know, it, it becomes a game of attrition at that point and who wants it and who concedes based on, you know, the availability in the bullpen or off the bench. I would I would I would give up the pitcher hitting and the traditional lineup to get back my traditional extra inning ball game. There you go. It's interesting that you say that. Uh, this guy on second, uh, that was a COVID-era rule to shorten games. Um, so much like seven-inning doubleheaders. So... Um, I think Manfred hinted at that as well. We covered that uh, in an episode that, as of this recording, hasn't been released yet. But yeah, he hints at getting rid of those COVID era rules, which are good. Yeah. Uh, Universal DH limiting the shift possibly to where maybe two people on either side of second. Uh, what's your opinion on the shift there? I think it's it's been taken to a far fetched extreme. Yeah, you know, you you take away the technology aspect. And you, you have no idea where the guy's hitting it, except for the guy on the pitch chart that's uh, charting every single time the guy hits. You know what he's doing, and you're doing it the old-fashioned way. I mean, if if the guys in the early 1900s had it, where would our rule books be? Where would our records be if they implemented the same shift or had the same technology we do? Um, and that's where I challenge technology a little bit because, you know, it's there's two tails to it as a professional hitter making millions of dollars you should be able to make the adjustment 
but for the last hundred years, there hasn't <laughs> been the shift. And you see Pete Rose with 4,256 hits. You see Babe Ruth with 714 home runs, Barry Bonds, Hank Aaron. Like, what, what, would, our, what would our history, what would our record book look like mm-hmm. if the shift was um, a part of it from the get-go? Yeah, it's interesting to say. So limiting it to where two people have to be on either side of second, is that? A, do you think that's a good compromise? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't shift my guys. I mean, you'll have the occasional, hey, you know, shade the middle, shade, you know, shade the hole. But I'm not, I'm not moving my third baseman to the, you know, left side of second base or the right side of second base. How you're looking at it, um, I'm not doing that because, as a major league hitter, you should bunt the ball down the third baseline every single time that they put the shift on. And you know, put it to bed. And these guys, these hitters are either not talented enough or just ignorant enough not not to do it and try and beat it into the shift and you're hitting 200, man, that's on you, uh, in my opinion. That I, I was never a big league hitter, um, so there's that caveat. But, man, I could bunt the ball, and, man, that's a free single. Why not take it? Man. So I guess just to close it out uh... – you know, baseball, the, the popularity trend is going down, but uh, uh, just it sounds like, you know, you're you're really focusing on the foundation. It's not the superficial bat flips. It's the foundation of the game. What makes it so special in the first place? And it's just maybe as as you know, other sports are just you know, chasing every fleeting, you know, social media that maybe baseball's enduring quality is the fact that it, it, that it doesn't change. It's very resistant to change. Sometimes that could be bad. It took forever to extend the netting to the foul poles and people got hit, fans got hit in the head and, you know, all that stuff. But maybe it's the aspects of it that don't change is what makes it just special would you say that yeah yeah i'd agree with that um and then you know i would also take take this perspective when it comes to postseason baseball what is the viewership the viewership spikes Mm -hmm. because at that point every game matters football every game matters more so we're playing 100 162 games yeah, it's easy to get in that lull on going to the games in mid mid June, you know, mid July when, you know, your team's either fourteen games out of it or you know, drivers our situation where we're what twenty six games out of first place. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, better luck next year. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, do you shorten the season and make every game matter or come up with some way to do that? I don't know. I, and then you're, start, you're starting to talk about changing it to where, you know, what's the right answer? What's the wrong answer? And, you know, being a traditional guy and I think you keep it as traditional as it can be. And, you know, the world is going to change, but baseball doesn't have to. There you go, man. It's 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 a beautiful game. That's why it's awesome. It's ninety feet, ninety feet, ninety feet, sixty feet, six inches. It's the same same story. These records are enduring. So, uh, I guess last question for you is: Here we are as this recording. We're in early August. Uh, how do you think the twenty twenty one MLB season is going to shake out? Who's going to make it? Who's going to make it to the World Series? Who do you think is ultimately going to win it? 
Man, <laughs> it's hard to root against the Dodgers, you know, with that payroll and that lineup and that pitching <laughs> staff. Man, um, talk about hedging your bets a little bit at the trade deadline. I like yeah, what they yeah. did. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see to see um, the Dodgers and and I don't. <laughs> I'm not gonna say it, Barrett. I'm not gonna say it. I'm not gonna say it. No. But, uh, um, I want to see the Yankees make a push. You know, they, uh, just big money market team. Um, I love the fact of what I loved what the Rays did last year. Um, yeah. having that small money team against yeah. that big market team. Um, but no, let's see. I, you know, show me Clayton Kershaw versus Garrett Cole or Mark, um, Max Scherzer versus Garrett Cole in Game One of the World Series, and. Uh, I'm going to tune in with the popcorn and a cold beer, 100%. The ratings on that are going to be through the charts. That's The the, the Yankees-Dodgers is what a lot of people in this country are rooting for, especially with the Dodgers and their history being in Brooklyn, and then they sh- jump ship, go to the West Coast, but then they rematch in the World Series. I mean, that's what everybody wants, and I know you didn't want to say the Astros, even though they have a pretty star-studded offense, uh, but man, you got Dodgers Yanks, they're making a push as of late, with Rizzo hitting all those bombs, I mean, but we'll see, man, that's what makes it so awesome, or you can have a situation with the Nationals. The Nationals won in 2019. They knock out the Dodgers, and they win the whole thing. So <laughs> you you never know. That's what makes it so great. So, but yeah. Well, who do you got? Who do, who do you got? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, we had our predictions, uh, our midseason predictions. Travis, in our midseason prediction episode, he you you chose the Red Sox to win the whole thing. Did you not? Yes. Yeah. I believe so. And. You know, Glenn, I pride myself on my level of objectivity, which is why I chose the East and Astros to win the whole dang thing. <laughs> uh, Fair. Fair. Uh, you know, I made that midseason predictions. Objectively, they have the best offense in baseball, OPS, batting average, you know, slugging on base. So it's not without merit. Um, they got Kendall Graveman who is so lights out. Ah, he's struck out, struck out, struck out in his first inning, his first outing, and his second outing, he was just throwing Ks. So we showed up our bullpen, and that might just be the final thing that it's pushed. Because you can't just have a good lineup. You can't just have Mike Trout pitching, pitching. You got to have that one-two punch, like a shilling and, you know, God, you Johnson and the bullpen, yeah, and the yeah. bullpen at this stage in the game. Oh yeah, bullpen, the unsung heroes of the game. If you can, <laughs> if you don't have a bullpen, you're going to get lit up late. So, but that's what's so beautiful about baseball. We'll see what happens, uh, man. Glenn, we feel like we could talk for five hours. It's that uh, th- this was so much fun. It was everything I hoped it would be and more. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your evening. Uh, you know, <laughs> I wonder if your wife's looking at the watch. It's like, dang, golly, when is he gonna <laughs> when's he gonna get out of there? <laughs> oh, she knows when it comes to baseball. There, it it's kind of my first love. So, uh, oh, <laughs> oh, oh man, oh man, there you go. So yeah, but. Dude, this was awesome, man. Three tech beer at grads coming together, you know, talking baseball, man. 
feel like we can go forever, man. It was so awesome having you on, Glenn. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, no, guys, I enjoyed it. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, yeah, let's do it again. Hats off to you guys and uh, wish you well. And, uh, you know, here's to uh, a lot more No Doubters. Well, there you have it. Glenn Morrison, man, that interview was awesome. It was so cool to hear from someone who has had so much experience playing baseball. His insight was awesome, and we had so much fun doing that interview with him. It was great to catch up, and we hope you guys enjoyed it, too. If you want to hear more interviews like this, please subscribe to No Doubter wherever you're listening to this episode so you don't miss out on future content. They come out most every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate it. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And please consider joining our Patreon to get an even greater level of access to No Doubter and help ensure that we can continue to bring you more of your favorite baseball content. Your support truly means the world to us. And also, please check out our merch store. You can get decked out in all kinds of No Doubter gear, such as mugs, t-shirts, hoodies, baseball shirts, onesies for your little ones, phone cases, and many more. All the links that I just described are in the description below. And as we like to always say, as you go throughout the week, whatever you're doing, every moment of your life, be sure to bat 400 and always swing for the fences. Uh, Goodbye, everybody. We'll see you next week. This episode of No Doubter was produced by Eric Bonsick and Travis Laughlin and edited by Travis Blaster. Our logo was designed by Lindsay Silbrook.